Welcome to the second part of an audiobook I'm producing of Lewis M. Colmeyer Jr.'s 1972 book about the contentious politics behind nominations to the Supreme Court. The book criticizes Nixon's approach to the Supreme Court, and this part begins with the pressure campaign that led to Abe Fortas' resignation in 1969. After that, it covers his first three nominations to the bench, Warren Burger, Clement Hainsworth, and G. Harold Carswell. But first, some notes. While this book as a whole could be fairly called anti-racist for its time, the poor treatment of African Americans by the U.S. government is a major theme, some descriptions of systemic racism border on apologia, and I have not changed the language Mr. Colmeyer used to describe African Americans, which is not woke. Please consider this a language warning. But, speaking of which, Carswell's hearings feature the most incredible smoking gun quote from a candidate's past ever introduced to the Supreme Court nomination process that I know of. It is not at all what you want dredged up in your job interview, and Carswell's opposition didn't even need Twitter to have someone dredge it up. Hi, I'm Mike Overby from Amicus Lectio, a podcast where I read you open access and public domain legal scholarship. Brian was gracious enough to let me produce this as a special for both of our shows through Lex Photographica. So thanks to him, and here's the shill. If you'd like to suggest papers to be read on Amicus Lectio, including your own, you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Amicus Lectio or at Lethargilistic. On with the show. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. God save this Honorable Court. The Supreme Court Crisis, by Lewis M. Colmeyer Jr., Chapter 7, Into Nixon's Lap Anyone who might have escaped Washington on the final day of the Supreme Court's term in June 1968 and gone fishing all summer where there was no newspaper, television, or radio could have returned when the court reopened in October and assumed he had missed absolutely nothing. At 10 o'clock in the morning of Monday, October 7th, the same red velvet curtains parted, and the same nine black-robed justices stepped through to their high-backed leather chairs behind the long mahogany bench. Chief Justice Warren announced the opening of the court's new term. Associate Justice Fortas was in his place. Justices Black, Douglas, Harlan, Brennan, Stewart, White, and Marshall were in their accustomed seats. To all appearances, the Warren court remained intact. Intact, but not in the way Warren in the spring had intended that his court should be preserved. Spring, summer, now fall, then winter. The return of Earl Warren was anticlimactic. Not Warren, but events outside this quiet place would determine whether the Supreme Court would continue to assert a doctrine of constitutional supremacy, or would be forced once more into a role of subordinate to the majoritarian branches of government. Some of the events outside seemed absurd, the Gallup poll, for example, recently had surveyed public opinion concerning the court, the same way the pollsters sampled the political popularity of presidential candidates. Quote, in general, they asked a nationwide sample of 1,534 adults, what kind of rating would you give the Supreme Court? Excellent, good, fair, or poor? End quote. Footnote. New York Times, July 10, 1968, page 22. The poll reported that unfavorable attitudes toward the court outweighed favorable sentiment by a 3-to-2 ratio. 
The Gallup poll, which had been checking public attitudes toward the court for 30 years, added that an individual's opinion of the court is closely related to his political identification. End footnote. If the Supreme Court were to be judged on the basis of its political popularity, there would be no need for a court and perhaps no reason for a Bill of Rights in the majoritarian scheme. Yet there was a peculiar and unhappy relevance to the popularity poll in the fall of 1968. Justice Holmes had said in 1913, quote, We are very quiet, but it is the quiet of a storm center. End quote. In October 1968, the Supreme Court faced a crisis more serious than any time since 1835 when Chief Justice Marshall died in office. The Warren Court's decisions against states' rights had carried the federal supremacy doctrine far beyond the place it had been in 1956, when 100 members of Congress pledged in the Southern Manifesto to, quote, bring about a reversal, end quote, of the decisions requiring racial desegregation of schools in 21 states. Earl Warren's plan to retire so that a president who supported the court could name the next chief justice had backfired. The successful filibuster of Republicans and Southern Democrats against Johnson's nomination of Fortas, while Nixon campaigned against the Warren court, intensified the political storm. Now, with the presidential election less than a month away, both Warren and Fortas were back, and the court was opening for business again. It could not be business as usual because the court now was under intense political assault. Its independence and the future of America's blacks and her other minorities were at stake. During the final weeks of the political campaign, Richard Nixon said the Supreme Court should not, quote, become a political issue, end quote, and then proceeded to make it even more so. He had made so-called law and order the major theme of his campaign, insisting that crime and violence were larger problems than the Vietnam War. He declared that slums, hunger, and unemployment were not the major causes of crime and violence, and asserted, quote, the war on poverty is not a substitute for a war on crime, end quote. Racial violence and street crime, which Nixon seemed to believe were a single problem, were to be blamed on the Supreme Court and Attorney General Ramsey Clark. Nixon promised not only to get rid of Clark, but also to enlist in his war on crime the wiretaps and electronic surveillance devices Clark had refused to use. As late as three days before the election, Nixon still was promising what he would do concerning the Supreme Court. He would appoint to the court strict constructionists who saw their duty as interpreting the law and not making law. They would see themselves as caretakers of the Constitution, not super-legislators with a free hand to impose their social and political viewpoints upon the American people. End quote. Presidential election campaigns in America are nationally televised popularity contests in which soap opera pitchmen in the employ of the candidates attempt to reduce the issues to subliminal slogans and simplistic rhetoric. Nixon, as a lawyer, knew that the term strict constructionist meant what everyone wants it to mean, depending on one's politics or philosophy, as the case may be. He was using it to communicate to political conservatives, and particularly those in the South, his opposition to the court's racial and criminal rights decisions. On November 5th, Nixon was elected by the smallest percentage of the popular vote for a successful presidential candidate since Woodrow Wilson's election in 1912. But the narrowness of his victory did not mean that he had been mistaken in pitching his campaign to that part of the American mind which did not identify with the blacks, the young, or the Warren court. Nixon won only about 43.4% of the popular vote, but George Wallace, who had spoken even more venomously against school desegregation and the Warren Court, received 13.5% of the total national popular vote. 
and Wallace had carried the states of Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Louisiana, and Mississippi. There were various issues in the 1968 campaign, but the combined 57% of the popular vote won by Nixon and Wallace must be accepted as valid evidence of the white majoritarian backlash against dissenting blacks and young people and against the civil rights decisions of the Warren Court. With the election over, one of the first questions to which Washington pundits turned their typewriters was the question of Earl Warren. Had Warren tendered his retirement only to President Johnson, and Johnson's choice of a successor having been defeated by filibuster, was it now Warren's intention to remain as Chief Justice? There really was no question, however. Warren's refusal to retire would be a concession that he had tried to give Johnson the right to name his successor. The attacks by Republicans and Southern Democrats on Warren and the court surely would grow more furious day by day if he now refused to retire. He had no choice. Before the month of November had passed, Warren let it be known, through the press, that he would retire and that Nixon could nominate his successor. The Chief Justice would prefer to remain until the end of the court's term, which would be in June 1969, but he left the date of his leaving to Nixon. In December, the Chief Justice and the President-elect came to an understanding. Warren would remain until the end of the term, and on that day he would retire. After the election, there also was uncertainty as to whether the Chief Justice in January would perform his traditional role of swearing in the new president. But Earl Warren, in November, also let it be known through the press that, if asked, he would swear in Richard Nixon. On January 20, 1969, the air of conciliation that fortunately prevails for at least the moment of presidential inaugurations was much in evidence at the Capitol Plaza as Nixon took office as the 37th president. Before a crowd of 65,000, Chief Justice Warren swore him in, and the new president, in his inaugural address, promised Democrats he would, quote, build on what has gone before, not turning away from the old, but turning toward the new, end quote. He pledged to blacks, quote, no man can be fully free while his neighbor is not. To go forward at all is to go forward together. This means black and white together as one nation, not two. The laws have caught up with our conscience. What remains is to give life to what is in the law, to ensure at last that as all are born equal in dignity for before God, all are born equal in dignity before man. End quote. End of young people, he said, quote, I know America's youth. I believe in them. We can be proud that they are better educated, more committed, more passionately driven by conscience than any generation in our history. End quote. But the loudest and longest applause came when, after talking about his desire for peace, Nixon added, quote, But to all those who would be tempted by weakness, let us leave no doubt that we will be as strong as we need to be for as long as we need to be. End quote. One of Nixon's first acts as president was to be rid of Ramsey Clark as attorney general. The act can be noted, even though the Republican candidate's promise to replace the Democratic attorney general was a fine example of campaign rhetoric. President Nixon installed as his attorney general, John N. Mitchell, his dour-faced political campaign manager. One of Nixon's second acts as president was to settle down to a two-hour luncheon with Attorney General Mitchell, 
two days after the inauguration. Nixon and Mitchell shared the instinctive personal conservatism of many wealthy lawyers whose success is self-made instead of handed down. Despite the hurrah of the campaign, neither was or ever could be completely a public man who genuinely enjoyed the crowds, as, say, Franklin Roosevelt did, and who in turn was genuinely embraced in popular esteem. There still was a certain reserve, a stiffness, in Nixon's and Mitchell's public appearances. There also was the inherent discomfort and distrust that lawyers often seem to feel in the presence of the press. Privately and politically, the president was closer to his attorney general than to anyone else in the cabinet, and at their long luncheon on their second day in office, they talked of many things. They talked of law and order. They talked of crime in Washington, which, with 70% of its population black, had given Nixon 18% of its popular vote. Among large cities, Washington had the largest ratio of Negroes, and it had given the president the smallest share of his popular vote. And they talked of Earl Warren. In this, Warren's last and final term as Chief Justice, the Supreme Court surrendered neither its independence nor its integrity to the executive and legislative branches. Indeed, one of the final acts of the Warren Court was to assert its constitutional prerogative by ruling that the House of Representatives acted unconstitutionally in excluding Adam Clayton Powell, the flamboyant black Democratic congressman from New York, from the seat in the Congress to which Harlem voters had elected him. Chief Justice Warren delivered the court's opinion. In its final weeks and days, the Warren Court asserted its constitutional authority also in a number of other important decisions. Holding that states and cities cannot impose quote-unquote special burdens on legislative actions to assist racial minorities, the court voided an Akron, Ohio, city charter provision requiring that city council-enacted fair housing laws be submitted to referendum vote. The court threw out a North Carolina literacy test for voting on the grounds that previously segregated and inferior Negro schools had so restricted educational opportunity that use of the test now to disqualify blacks was illegal. And the court held unconstitutional under the First Amendment state laws making a crime of the mere possession in a private home of obscene books and magazines. And then, as the end of the court's term drew near and Earl Warren prepared to take his leave and President Nixon readied his announcement of the election of the new Chief Justice, Fate once more came to play a role which was not foreseen in the nomination and confirmation of Earl Warren's successor. President Nixon had said that he would appoint to the Supreme Court quote-unquote caretakers. Patently, the Constitution needs more than caretakers. But Nixon's purposes demanded a caretaker, a chief justice who would lead the Supreme Court back to its place, passively behind and unobtrusively out of the way of the executive and legislative branches. Now was the time, as Nixon time and again had said during the campaign, to strengthen, quote, the peace forces as against the criminal forces in this country, end quote. It was the time for law and order, for new strength to local and state police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It was the time for, quote, benign neglect, unquote, of civil rights and criminal rights and constitutional rights generally as against the police powers of the state. Inasmuch as President Nixon sought to upset the Warren Court, whereas President Johnson had sought to preserve it, the former's search for a new Chief Justice led him in directions different than those Johnson had followed. But every president who has had the opportunity to name a Chief Justice almost certainly has thought of his best friends. One's best friends mirror in the mind one's best self. So Richard Nixon thought initially about his friends and considered first of all John Mitchell, his Attorney General the manager of a successful 1968 political campaign and former law partner. Mitchell, quote, is superbly qualified, the president later said, 
he is my closest advisor on all legal matters and on many other matters as well. End quote. The president next considered Herbert Brownell, a wealthy New York lawyer and close friend who had been attorney general in the Eisenhower administration when Nixon was vice president. Quote, he was the man next to attorney general Mitchell, who was my closest advisor in selecting the cabinet. The president later commented, I think he would have made a superb chief justice. End quote. There was Thomas E. Dewey, former governor of New York, twice the unsuccessful Republican candidate for president, and still an important figure in the Republican Party. Nixon also considered Potter Stewart, the incumbent member of the Supreme Court who thought most like the president, and he jotted down the name of Charles Ryan, a man prominent in legal circles who had been a Nixon classmate at Duke University Law School and who had helped Nixon in the 1968 political campaign. Ryan was, quote, perhaps my closest friend among all of those considered, end quote. Nixon said. But Nixon scratched off his list of candidates for the chief justiceship the names of all those men with whom he had a personal relationship. For Lyndon Johnson, personal and political friendship had been the overriding consideration. But few presidents have taken friendships as far as did Lyndon Johnson. And, because Johnson had gone too far, the personal friendship of Richard Nixon could not be an asset, but would be a political liability for a candidate for nomination to the Supreme Court. There were other reasons why Nixon eliminated each of these names from his list. John Mitchell professed personal reasons for not wanting to be Chief Justice, and, whatever they were, his reasons apparently were held as sincerely as those which once upon a time had led Abe Fortas to resist unsuccessfully Johnson's insistence on making him an Associate Justice. Brownell, when he had been Attorney General, had made enemies in the Senate who now might try to block his confirmation. Anyway, Brownell might be too liberal. He had wanted John Lindsay, mayor of New York, as Nixon's running mate in the 1968 campaign. Tom Dewey would be too risky. He had too much stature in his own right, and might turn out to be too independent-minded as Chief Justice. Anyway, Dewey and Warren had been running mates once. Potter Stewart had requested that his name be scratched from the list. Charles Ryan, for Nixon's purposes in 1969, was not well enough known outside the legal community. So there were reasons for scratching each name. But a perhaps larger reason why Nixon scratched all of them was that the Senate remained after the 1968 election in control of the Democrats, and Richard Nixon almost certainly was going to have trouble getting the Senate to confirm his nominee to succeed Earl Warren. Johnson's nomination of the liberal Mr. Fortas had after all not been defeated on its merits by a majority of the Senate, but by a filibuster. Had the Fortas nomination been put to a vote, requiring only a simple majority, Fortas might well have been confirmed by a slim margin and now a slim majority of liberals might defeat Nixon's nominee, or filibuster it to death. Nixon, in pondering his choice, took only one other man into his confidence, John Mitchell. They weighed all the considerations and decided together that all of the president's personal and political friends must be scratched. With all the potential trouble ahead, Nixon could not add to his difficulty by exposing his nomination to the charge of cronyism. With the Fortis rejection so fresh and Senate liberals so anxious now to take revenge, this was no time to repeat Johnson's cardinal error. So Nixon looked elsewhere and found his caretaker. And then all of the potential trouble with the Senate suddenly evaporated. Even one of Nixon's cronies probably could have been confirmed. For the evaporation of the liberal opposition in the Senate had almost nothing to do with the president or his nominee. The opposition was reduced to a weak vapor by another untimely and unexpected liberal debacle. It was a historic accident through which Abe Fortas walked off the court and Warren Earl Berger walked on. The annual dinner of the White House Correspondents Association was to be held on Saturday evening, May 3, 1969, 
in the cavernous ballroom of the Washington Hilton Hotel. The association, despite its name, is made up not exclusively of news media people assigned to cover the White House, but newspaper, wire service, television, and other reporters who cover anything and everything in Washington. The association's sole reason for being appears to be to sponsor an annual dinner at which members and their guests may honor the president. Presidents in recent years sometimes have attended, and at other times have sent the vice president instead. The president's decision seems to depend not so much on the state of world affairs as on his disposition of the moment to demonstrate either a friendliness or a hostility toward the Washington press corps. But the press does not know beforehand whether the president will appear, so invariably the black tie dinner is a large, noisy affair, peopled with reporters of all stripes and their guests, many of whom are officials high and low of the political party which happens to be in control of the White House that year. As the ballroom filled with chattering, drinking, smoking people, the evening of May 3rd, some of the officials of Attorney General Mitchell's Justice Department went from one table to another, and from one reporter to the next familiar face they could see, wearing on their own faces the special kind of controlled anticipation that bureaucrats portray when they have a state secret which now they want to tell. The message they were carrying from table to table was that Life magazine, in its new issue, which would be available in Washington the next day, would have a very important story concerning the Supreme Court. By the time dinner was served, life's promised revelation was a larger topic of speculation in the ballroom than whether President Nixon was going to appear. He did. On Friday, the day before the dinner, the Justice Department had dispatched a United States Marshal to New York to pick up proof copies of the Life article. The Marshal flew back to Washington with the proofs, and, prior to the time the dinner began on Saturday evening, the article had been read by top officials at the Justice Department and the White House. Clearly, the Nixon administration had prior knowledge of the article. It was not known how long the administration had been aware or how much the administration knew, but the article had been in preparation since late in 1969. On Sunday morning, the stacks of Life magazines, which had arrived in Washington, contained an exclusive story in which William Lambert, an associate editor of Life, reported that Abe Fortas, after he became a member of the Supreme Court, was paid $20,000 by a charitable foundation set up by financier Lewis Wolfson and his brothers. Wolfson's name was well known in Washington and Wall Street. Only a week before, the Wall Street Journal had carried an interview with Wolfson on the occasion of his impending surrender in Miami Beach to begin serving a one-year federal prison sentence imposed for selling corporate stock that had not been registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. In the interview, Wolfson had said that he could have been spared the jail sentence by accepting a pardon which he said was available, allegedly through political connections, in the preceding December from President Johnson. The interview also recalled that Wolfson, now 57 years old and graying, a decade earlier had been an industrial giant commanding a $400 million conglomerate of shipbuilding yards, paint factories, chemical plants, and money-lending operations. The Life article recounted details of Wolfson's more glorious past, and noted the disclosure, before the Senate Judiciary Committee almost a year earlier, of Fortas's acceptance of $15,000 for lecturing at American University. Then the article said that on January 3, 1966, three months after Fortas became an associate justice, a check for $20,000 drawn on the bank account of the Wolfson Family Foundation was paid to Fortas. It said that in March 1966, the Securities and Exchange Commission recommended to the Justice Department that criminal proceedings be brought against Wolfson and an associate for allegedly failing to register with the SEC a public offering of stock of Continental Enterprises, Incorporated. 
In June, the article continued, Fortis paid a one-day visit to Harborview Farm, Wolfson's home near Ocala, Florida. The article said that in July, Wolfson wrote to Manuel Cohen, a Democrat who then was chairman of the SEC, asking that the criminal proceedings recommendation sent to the Justice Department be withdrawn and that Wolfson be given an opportunity to appear before the commission. In September, the Life article continued, a federal grand jury in New York, to which the Justice Department had presented the Continental Enterprises case, indicted Wolfson and his associate. In December, Fortis returned the $20,000 to the Wolfson Family Foundation, the article said. Subsequently, Wolfson was convicted. The Supreme Court refused to review the case, and in the late spring of 1969, Wolfson began to serve his one-year prison sentence. The Life article concluded by noting that Wolfson, in the Wall Street Journal interview, had asserted that he could have gone free had he been willing to accept a pardon from President Johnson in December 1968. The article quoted Justice Fortas as saying there was, quote, no impropriety, end quote, in his conduct, and added that Fortas, quote-unquote, ostensibly, was paid the $20,000, quote, to advise the foundation on ways to use its funds for charitable, education, and civil rights projects, end quote. The article further stated that Life had not, quote, uncovered evidence making possible a charge that Wolfson hired Fortis to fix his case, end quote. On Sunday, the same day the stacks of Life magazines were available in Washington, Justice Fortis, without making himself available to the press, issued a statement through the Supreme Court's press officer. The statement began, quote, I have not accepted any fee or emolument from Mr. Wolfson or the Wolfson Family Foundation, end quote. It said that in 1965, before Fortis went on the court, his law firm represented a Wolfson company, and, quote, In this connection, I met Mr. Wolfson and discussed with him the significant and commendable work of Mr. Wolfson and his family foundation in the field of harmonious racial and religious relations, end quote. In 1966, the statement continued, The foundation, quote, tendered a fee to me in the hope that I would find time and could undertake, consistently with my court obligations, research functions, studies, and writings connected with the work of the foundation, end quote. Fortas said he returned the fee when he concluded, quote, I could not undertake the assignment, end quote. Fortas said he never believed the fee was tendered with, quote, any hope or expectation that it would induce me to intervene or make representation on Mr. Wolfson's behalf, end quote. Fortas added, quote, At no time have I spoken or communicated with any official about Mr. Wolfson, whether with respect to a pardon or his criminal cases or his SEC matters. At no time have I given Mr. Wolfson or any of his family, associates, foundations, or interests any legal advice or services since becoming a member of the court. End quote. On Monday morning, the court's marshal chanted his familiar, Oh ye, oh ye, oh ye, and Fortas took his accustomed place as if nothing had happened. Privately, he discussed his problem and what he should do about it with his friends among the brethren of the court. He decided he would ride out the storm for the few weeks remaining in the term, and, he hoped, by the time the court opened its new term in October, the storm would have passed. Instead, the storm Fortas had seeded grew worse. His Sunday statement did him more harm than good. It seemed less than frank in saying no fee was accepted, and then conceding a fee was tendered and returned. It did not mention the figure of $20,000, nor did it explain why the fee had been kept for 11 months. Fortas's lack of candor inevitably was seen against a background that flashed with the old charges of cronyism and wheeling and dealing. Some of the more exuberantly conservative members of Congress prepared impeachment proceedings to remove him from the court, and none of the more prominent liberals in Congress spoke out in his defense. 
but most of the members of Congress, including its senior conservatives, and many prominent legal scholars and universities, were publicly silent. So great was their shock, and so strong was their expectation that Fortas must out of conscience resign. Instead, Fortas kept speaking engagements in Boston, Massachusetts, and in Richmond, Virginia, still seeming to ignore the storm. The Nixon administration seemed outwardly to be ignoring it also. In fact, the wheels inside the White House and the Justice Department had been spinning at least since the proofs of the Life magazine article had been studied late on Friday, May 2nd. The stakes for Richard Nixon were almost as high as for Abe Fortas. If Fortas resigned, Nixon would have the opportunity, rare in any president's first year in office, to name two conservatives to the Supreme Court. If, on the other hand, Fortas refused to resign and Congress began impeachment proceedings against him, not only might the president's legislative program be sidetracked, but the result could be acrimony permanently poisoning the new Republican administration's relations with the Democrats in Congress. Far from ignoring the Fortas affair, Attorney General Mitchell decided that Wolfson should be interrogated concerning his foundation's relationship with Fortas. FBI agents, armed with a grand jury subpoena, questioned Wolfson. Then Mitchell called Earl Warren to ask whether he could see the Chief Justice privately. On Wednesday, May 7th, the Attorney General paid his secret call. He laid before the Chief Justice additional information on Fortas. No one but the two of them knows precisely what was said. But clearly, it was Mitchell's purpose to enlist Warren's help in obtaining Fortas's resignation. Persons who are extremely close to both Warren and Fortas say there are conflicting stories about whether Warren advised Fortas to resign or to stay and fight it out. But the fact is that Mitchell went back to the Justice Department and waited while the rest of the week passed. Fortas did not resign. On Sunday, Mitchell's secret began to leak. Newsweek magazine reported that the Attorney General had gone to the Supreme Court building to tell the Chief Justice that, unless Fortas resigned, more damaging information about the relationship between Fortas and Wolfson would become public knowledge. The following day, Mitchell and Warren confirmed the fact of their meeting. That was Monday. Tuesday passed, and still Fortas did not resign. On Wednesday, May 14th, the more damaging information began to leak out, and finally, that afternoon, Fortas caved under the mounting pressure and sent to President Nixon a short letter of resignation, and to Chief Justice Warren a long letter of attempted explanation. The resignation letter reached the White House at 5.30 p.m. on Wednesday, just before the President was to speak on national television about the Vietnam War. The White House, not wanting to bury the President's war message under headlines about Fortas' resignation, or vice versa, withheld public announcement of the resignation. At 8.45 a.m. on Thursday, when the White House still had not disclosed the resignation, Fortas released it himself through the Supreme Court's press office. What Fortas released was, until that moment, his and John Mitchell's secret, that Justice Fortas had agreed to accept from the Wolfson Family Foundation not just $20,000, but an annual payment of $20,000, for so long as he lived, and thereafter, to Mrs. Fortas, if she survived him. Fortas spelled out the arrangement in his long letter to the Chief Justice. He said he came to know Wolfson in 1965, before Lyndon Johnson nominated him as an associate justice, when Wolfson retained Fortas's old law firm of Arnold, Fortas, and Porter, to represent two Wolfson companies, one of which was even then involved in certain securities problems with the SEC. At that time, according to the Fortas letter to Warren, Wolfson invited Fortas's attention to the charitable works of the Wolfson Family Foundation. Shortly after Fortas joined the court in October 1965, Wolfson came to Washington again and talked with Mr. Justice Fortas about the foundation. Fortas agreed to a quote-unquote long-term association with the foundation, 
and the annual stipend of $20,000 was also agreed upon. The $20,000 check, which Life magazine discovered to have been paid in January 1966, was merely the first payment. Fortas, in his letter, recalled the night spent in June 1966 at the Wolfson Farm in Ocala, Florida. Later that month, the letter to the Chief Justice continued, Fortas decided to terminate his relationship with the Wolfson Foundation. There were two reasons, he told Warren. First, Fortas's work at the court was too heavy. And second, quote, I learned that the SEC had referred Mr. Wolfson's file to the Department of Justice for consideration as to criminal prosecution, end quote. Fortas said he canceled his agreement with the Foundation on June 21, 1966. Wolfson was indicted on two charges in September and October 1966. Fortas said he returned the initial $20,000 in December 1966. The letter did not explain why the $20,000 was not returned more promptly. Fortas concluded his letter to Warren with the assertion that he had not, quote, interceded or taken part in any matter, end quote, affecting Wolfson, and, quote, there has been no wrongdoing on my part, end quote. He was resigning, he said, quote, in order that the court may not continue to be subjected to extraneous stress, end quote. And thus did Lyndon Johnson's best friend fall into Richard Nixon's lap. End of chapter 7. The charge made was that Fortas, while a justice, was rendering legal advice to Wolfson. The story gained credence from the fact that even after Fortas became a member of the court, he continued as an advisor to LBJ. That aspect of the matter had been exposed in 1968, when Fortas went before the Senate Judiciary Committee and failed to obtain confirmation as Chief Justice. But a year later, the disclosure in life of the fee paid by Wolfson, the long delay in returning it, and the fact that Wolfson was in deep trouble with the federal government all brought matters to a head and gave Nixon the opportunity to free another court seat. I was in Brazil at the time, giving lectures on habeas corpus at the Candido Mendes University, and by the time I returned, the hounds were in full pursuit of Fortis. I sat up with him two nights, serving as a sounding board. I asked him if he had tried to get LBJ to do something to help Wolfson. His reply was an emphatic negative. I asked him if he had directly or indirectly contacted Manny Cohen, chairman of the SEC, or any other SEC official to aid Wolfson. He said he had not. He apparently had held Wolfson's hand, so to speak, but had never undertaken to give legal advice or acted as counsel after coming on the court. I urged Abe not to resign, though parts of the press were demanding it. At first, Abe agreed with me, but he quickly changed. I saw him the next night, and he was then resolved to resign. My son Bill was with me, and he too pleaded with Abe not to resign. Blood will taste good to this gang, and having tasted it, they'll want more, my son said. I told Abe that if he decided to resign, to do so on his own timetable, not on someone else's. Abe Fortas's acceptance of a salary from the Wolfson Foundation had nothing to do with his performance of his judicial duties as a member of the court. He meticulously refrained from sitting on or voting in any cases with Wolfson connections. Nevertheless, it was a juicy morsel that was seized upon in order to denounce the justice for unethical conduct. The problem was that Fortas had never wanted to be a justice and had left his law practice most reluctantly. I think he had regretted it almost every day on the court. So the urge to stay was not strong to begin with, and he quickly magnified the gravity of the charges against him. The Fortas matter was discussed at conference in Abe's presence. 
He explained that while he had done nothing improper, he thought that in view of the outcry in the press, it would be in the best interest of the court for him to resign. He did so the next day, on May 14, 1969, with a public statement. He told me in private that he had done so because of the advice of Clark Clifford, who, apparently sensing the unhappiness of Fortas on the court, and feeling that the unpopularity of LBJ would most likely result in the opposition taking revenge on Fortas, recommended that he resign. Within a year, Fortas sincerely regretted he had not faced the storm of criticism and stared his detractors down. The first person to call him, offering condolences, was Richard Nixon, the man who had arranged it all. He sympathized with Abe because Nixon, too, had experienced the hostility of the press and knew how vicious and unreasonable it could be. The talk lasted almost an hour. I understood that Abe made a record of that conversation so that historians will have an accurate and complete account. Having disposed of Fortas, Nixon turned loose on me, and there were indications that Brennan would be next. The impeachment effort against me was the direct result of the failure of the Senate to confirm Clement Hainsworth and Harold Carswell, whom Nixon had named to take the place of Fortas. As I've discussed earlier, I knew little of Carswell at the time, but I did know Hainsworth slightly, and I thought he would have been a good appointment to the court. While Carswell's nomination was pending, House Minority Leader Gerald R. Ford said, If the Senate does not confirm Carswell, we'll impeach Douglas. That threat cost Carswell five votes in the Senate. He lost by a vote of 51 to 45. The ease with which Fortas had been dispatched quickened the assault on me, which crystallized after Hainsworth and Carswell failed to be confirmed. On April 11, 1970, Agnew said the administration should take a good look at what I had been saying and thinking. At the present time, all I'm advocating is that Justice Douglas's record be thoroughly examined, including his writings and his verbal opinions, to see whether they are compatible with the position he holds. Justice William O. Douglas Chapter 8. Nixon Runs with the Ball One day, after the Nixon administration had been in office only six months, a small group of Negroes from several southern states walked into the Justice Department building on Pennsylvania Avenue and went up to the fifth floor, where they staged a quiet sit-in in the outer office of Attorney General Mitchell to protest the administration's civil rights policies. A summer later, after the Nixon-Mitchell policies on law and order and civil rights had been developed more fully, and dissenters were making real and imaginary threats to bomb a number of Washington buildings, the Department of Justice became a guarded fortress barring entry to persons without proper identification. But in the summer of 1969, the huge steel doors remained open, and the blacks simply walked in. After they had sat for a time in the Attorney General's office, they were told that if they would move out quietly, Mitchell would talk with them in the Great Hall downstairs. The Great Hall, of course, was the large room used for the swearing-in of Ramsey Clark as Attorney General, and for similar ceremonial occasions. The blacks moved out, and it was in the Great Hall that Attorney General Mitchell delivered, inadvertently, his famous line, quote, Instead of listening to what we say, watch what we do, end quote. It may be that the American people, black and white, are accustomed enough to political rhetoric that, to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, they do not believe all politicians all the time. But politicians rarely concede publicly that they are trying to fool the people. And, as Nixon's and Mitchell's struggle with Senate liberals over control of the Supreme Court grew into a classic confrontation of governmental power, differences arose time and again between what each set of combatants said 
and what they did. Mitchell's Justice Department said certain things and did certain things relative to Abe Fortas and Lewis Wolfson, which were or which became public knowledge. It also engaged in conversations and actions, the detailed contents of which remain secret. What, then, was the Nixon administration's total role in the fall of Abe Fortas? Did Mitchell merely push Fortas when Mitchell went to the Supreme Court to tell Chief Justice Warren of the more damaging information against Fortas? Or did Mitchell, perhaps with threats or promises, shove with all the muscle at the command of the Justice Department and the FBI? Whatever the full contents of Mitchell's briefcase in his mind, and however they were revealed to Warren, the Attorney General's secret visit with the Chief Justice was unusual in the extreme from constitutional and political points of view. The Department, of course, had prosecuted Lewis Wolfson, and it had access to the Securities and Exchange Commission's investigative files. It is not known what the Department knew prior to receipts of the proof of the Life magazine article about Wolfson's relationship with Fortas, but it is unlikely that the Department, with the FBI's vast investigative resources available to it, knew nothing of the relationship. Certain of Richard Nixon's close Republican friends knew as early as the fall of 1968, at the height of Nixon's presidential campaign, that there was some sort of potentially explosive tie between Justice Fortas and Lewis Wolfson. After the Life magazine article appeared, the Justice Department attempted to maintain the fiction that it was not investigating Justice Fortas. Rather, after FBI agents were sent to question Wolfson, the department said its investigation was to determine whether there was any quote-unquote obstruction of justice in connection with Wolfson's attempt to combat the federal charges of selling unregistered stock. Ironically, it was in the end the Justice Department that officially closed the book on the Fortas affair by failing to bring any legal action against him. Some weeks later, after Fortas resigned from the Supreme Court, the department spread the word that the FBI investigation had uncovered no reason for bringing action against Fortas, and therefore the case was closed. Inasmuch as the Justice Department brought no action against Fortas after he resigned, it must be concluded that, whatever the reasons he was tendered $20,000 annually for life, there was no evidence that his relationship with Wolfson violated any federal laws. If that were the case, Fortas could have tried to ride out the storm, bracing for the possibility of impeachment proceedings. Had he had that kind of fortitude, it is doubtful that Congress would have removed him from the court. A vote of impeachment by the House of Representatives was not imminent when Fortas resigned, but if the House had impeached Fortas, it is very doubtful the Senate would have convicted and removed him. Had there been a trial before the Senate, the charges against Fortas would have become inextricably interwoven with political opposition to the Warren Court, as the impeachment of Justice Samuel Chase, 164 years earlier, had become bound up with the opposition to the martial court of that day. The Senate refused to place constitutional government in jeopardy by trying the Supreme Court, and almost certainly it would not do so now. Principle and rhetoric do not become that confused in the Senate. It acquitted Samuel Chase, and the House has never impeached any other member of the Supreme Court. But Fortas, unlike Chase, was unwilling or unable to ride out the storm. Instead, he made history by becoming the first justice in the history of the Supreme Court to resign under fire for his personal conduct. His resignation was a personal tragedy. Not even his enemies denied that he was a brilliant lawyer. What, then, was the flaw in this brilliant, quiet, 58-year-old man? One can only guess, but, at the time Fortas was sitting before the Senate Judiciary Committee as nominee to be the next Chief Justice, he said that the court, quote, was not part of my life plan, end quote. In an emotional rejoinder to conservative senators, who were attempting to demonstrate that his relationship to Johnson made him unfit to be the new Chief Justice, Fortas quietly and haltingly told his detractors, quote, 
I did not seek the post of Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. That was not part of my life plan. I wrote the President by hand a letter, of which I have no copy, but I wrote it to him in longhand after he first suggested that I accept the position. I wrote it to him in longhand, Senator, because I was not writing it for the record. I dislike being in the position of rejecting a call by the President of the United States to public service. He nevertheless, as is well known, insisted that I do this, that it was my duty to do it. End quote. Perhaps Fortas knew that the boldness and skill which had made him a highly successful advocate were not the qualities that contributed to greatness or to personal satisfaction on the court. Perhaps Fortas knew that the $39,500 annual salary of an associate justice, it was raised to $60,000 in 1969, was not adequate to support the Rolls-Royce and Georgetown Mansion, the summer house in Westport, and the other material elements of the lifestyle to which he was accustomed. Whatever the reasons, Fortas resigned from the court and went back to the practice of law, although not to the Victorian mansion on 19th Street, occupied by Arnold and Porter, as the firm was known after Fortas went to the court in 1965. Some of the newer partners in the old firm repeatedly threatened to leave if Fortas came back, not so much because of the notoriety as because Fortas might take some of the clients he had distributed among the junior members of the firm in 1965. Instead, Fortas organized a new firm, Fortas & Coven, that opened for business in a modernistic, glass-walled building in the Georgetown section of Washington. Elsewhere in Washington, the resignation of Abe Fortas left behind waves of self-righteous indignation and of anger. There was much talk in the judiciary and in Congress of ethics and conflicts of interest, as there always is after a Washington scandal in whatever branch. The judicial branch hastily prepared to require all federal judges to disclose their sources of private income, and senators were saying that, if the judiciary did not act, Congress would force complete disclosure by judges, though not necessarily by members of Congress. In addition, some conservative Republicans in Congress wanted a congressional investigation to further probe the extrajudicial activities of Fortas and other members of the judiciary. On the other hand, some liberal Democrats in Congress wanted a congressional investigation to determine whether the Nixon administration, in pursuing its role in the Fortas affair, and particularly by taking the case against Fortas to Chief Justice Warren, had violated the constitutional separation of powers doctrine. In the end, there were no congressional investigations. The liberal Democrats were too dejected and unnerved by Fortas's resignation to press for an investigation of the Nixon administration's role. The conservative Republicans were willing to let Mitchell's Justice Department handle any further investigation of Mr. Fortas. Moreover, a number of leading Republicans and Democrats in Congress hesitated to pursue investigations which might ultimately damage the integrity of the Supreme Court. For its part, the judiciary adopted rules under which the extrajudicial activities of judges would be screened, but the rules were not applied to justices of the Supreme Court. At the White House, the resignation of Abe Fortas was not a matter for righteous indignation or anger. The president had no time for retrospection. After the news of the resignation had broken on Thursday morning, May 15th, the papers that afternoon and on Friday morning told the story of Fortas's fall in big, black headlines. The president read the papers, cleared his desk of other matters, and left the White House to spend the weekend at Camp David, the presidential retreat in the Catoctin Mountains in Maryland, north of Washington. He took with him his lists and Mitchell's files concerning the selection of the new chief justice, and, over the weekend in quiet privacy, he went through the materials a last time and confirmed his decision. Satisfied that his choice was right, he telephoned John Mitchell. After they had discussed their man and talked about the Senate and the court, the president gave orders to move. 
Nixon told Mitchell to get in touch with J. Edgar Hoover and have the FBI run a quiet check on the nominee. The Bureau similarly investigates all men the president wants to name to high office, checking with his neighbors and employers, looking into his bank account, to make sure there is nothing hidden in the man's background that would embarrass the president. The FBI does not always find everything, but it tries. On Monday morning, Nixon again talked with Mitchell. By Wednesday morning, the FBI check was completed, and all was in order. At the president's direction, Attorney General Mitchell asked the nominee to come over to the Justice Department, and at 12.30 that afternoon, Mitchell informed him that the president had selected him to be the next Chief Justice. Until then, no one except the three of them, Hoover probably did not know the position the man would occupy, knew of the selection. Nixon and Mitchell made their choice without confiding even in the top White House staff people. By Wednesday afternoon, activity was underway all through the White House. Prime evening time on the national television networks was requested for the president. Nixon himself telephoned Herbert Brownell to tell his old friend of what was going to take place. The president told Mitchell to phone Chief Justice Warren as a matter of courtesy. Tom Dewey was informed by Mitchell or Brownell, or perhaps both. Mitchell also informed Vice President Agnew. At 7 p.m. on Wednesday, May 21, 1969, one week almost to the hour that Abe Fortas's resignation was delivered to the White House, President Nixon went on national television and into the nation's living rooms to introduce Warren Earl Berger, the man he had chosen to succeed Earl Warren as Chief Justice. The president told the television audience that Berger was, quote-unquote, qualified intellectually, qualified from the standpoint of judicial temperament, qualified from the standpoint of his legal philosophy, to be the next chief justice, and, in reference to the headlines of a week earlier, added that Berger was, above all, a man of, quote-unquote, unquestioned integrity throughout his private and public life. The 61-year-old man, who appeared beside the president on TV screens throughout the country, looked rather like Earl Warren. Berger's hair was flowing white, his smile was pleasant, and his appearance was distinguished. The similarities ended there. Nixon's nomination of Berger was no snap decision, notwithstanding the president's quick movement after Fortas fell. In fact, Nixon had known Berger for 21 years, since 1948, and, rather ironically, Fortas also knew Berger. Earl Warren and Richard Nixon were Republicans and Californians, and they never had gotten on well together. Warren, 22 years Nixon's senior, already held a high office in the state and the party in 1946, when Nixon entered politics as a candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives. Warren had been district attorney of Alameda County, attorney general of California, and, in 1943, was elected governor of the state. In 1944, he was keynote speaker at the Republican National Convention. As governor, it was Warren's custom not to endorse Republican candidates, and he refused his endorsement when Nixon ran for the House in 1946 and for the Senate in 1950. In 1948, the 57-year-old governor of California was a Republican presidential hopeful, and the 35-year-old congressman from California was establishing his reputation as an alert fighter against alleged subversives in government. The political paths Nixon and Warren were pursuing, not harmoniously, were crossed by Warren Earl Berger, a 41-year-old lawyer from St. Paul, Minnesota. Berger was a leader in the St. Paul Junior Chamber of Commerce and an active member of the Republican Party in the state. The three were brought together in 1948 by the Republican National Convention in Philadelphia. One of the contenders for the Republican nomination for president that year was Harold Stassen, 
who had been elected governor of Minnesota in 1938. Berger was Stassen's floor manager at the 1948 convention. Nixon, by his own recollection, went to the convention as one of the quote-unquote great Stassen men, but the convention nominated Thomas Dewey and Earl Warren. Herbert Brownell managed the GOP election campaign, which lost to Truman and Barclay. In 1952, Nixon, Warren, and Berger came together again, and the results were different. Nixon, by 1952, was a member of the United States Senate from California, Earl Warren was still governor of California, and Warren Berger was still out in Minnesota supporting Stassen. At the Republican National Convention held in Chicago, the leading contenders for the presidential nomination were Senator Robert A. Taft of Ohio, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, and Governor Warren. The Minnesota delegation came again supporting Stassen, and, again according to Nixon's recollection, Berger, quote, helped to bring the Stassen delegation over to Eisenhower, end quote. When his bandwagon broke down in Chicago, Warren also supported Eisenhower. Eisenhower won the Republican nomination, and Nixon, who, although pledged to Warren, apparently left the governor's bandwagon early, became the vice presidential candidate. After Eisenhower was inaugurated in 1953, Earl Warren became chief justice, and Warren Earl Berger was given a job in the Justice Department as Assistant Attorney General in charge of the department's civil division. Herbert Brownell was Eisenhower's Attorney General. Berger did a competent enough job in the civil division, but his star did not begin to ascend until one day when Attorney General Brownell needed help and Berger stepped out of ranks to offer his assistance. The Attorney General's problem grew out of a case that also interested the Vice President. Nixon had, and still has, a particular interest in government loyalty programs and internal security matters. The case was that of John F. Peters. When it reached the Supreme Court, Warren Earl Berger was on one side, and Abe Fortas was on the opposite side. Peters was a professor of medicine at Yale and a part-time consultant to the U.S. Public Health Service. He was paid by the government only for the ten or so days a year he was required to be in Washington and his work was not of a confidential nature that involved access to classified material. But, in January 1949, a government board of inquiry on employee loyalty informed Peters that derogatory information concerning his loyalty had been received. Peters responded, in writing, and the board of inquiry informed him of its conclusion that there was no reasonable grounds for doubting his loyalty to the United States. But, in May 1951, the Inquiry Board reopened the case, notifying Peters that 16 charges were specified against him, alleging, among other things, membership in the U.S. Communist Party. The board, in 1952, held a hearing, and Peters again denied, under oath, charges against him. Then the board, still without identifying Peters' accusers or the sources of the information against him, notified Peters that he was barred from federal service for three years. Peters sued the government, claiming that the board's action was arbitrary and unlawful, and that the board had acted unconstitutionally by denying him the right to confront his accusers. Attorney General Brownell's problem, when the case reached the Supreme Court, was that Solicitor General Simon E. Soboloff refused to sign the government's brief or argue the case before the Supreme Court. The Solicitor General and his staff normally argue the government's cases before the Supreme Court, except the few which the Attorney General decides to argue personally but the loyalty program was controversial within the government, even then, and Soboloff apparently felt he could not support the government's position in the Peters case. Soboloff's refusal was potentially of great embarrassment to the Eisenhower administration because the constitutional issues raised by Peters were substantial and the case was drawing wide attention. 
The administration was saved from embarrassment, however, by Warren E. Berger, who volunteered to sign the brief and argue the case. It is unclear whether Berger was motivated by sincere belief in the loyalty program, or political ambition, or both. Abe Fortas's law firm undertook the defense of Peters, as did Owen Lattimore and others, who, during the McCarthy era, were accused of disloyalty. Fortas, among others, signed the briefs that were filed in the Supreme Court in defense of Peters. Fortas's law partners, Thurman Arnold and Paul Porter, conducted the oral argument before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided the case in 1955 without reaching the constitutional issues. The court's opinion, written by Chief Justice Warren, held that the Board of Inquiry had exceeded its lawful authority in barring Peters from federal employment, and on that basis, its order against Peters was unlawful. The court also ordered the Board's findings against Peters expunged from government records. If Berger did not win the case for the government, he at least did not lose it. Had the court decided the case on constitutional grounds, the decision could have had serious effects on the entire federal security program. The following year, a vacancy occurred in the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and the Eisenhower administration showed its gratitude to Warren Berger by naming him to the position. In the 14 years Berger sat on the Court of Appeals in Washington, Nixon saw him quote-unquote off and on, as President Nixon recalled after nominating Berger as Chief Justice. They also corresponded, quote, in fact, I wrote him when I thought he made a good speech a couple of years ago, end quote, President Nixon said. In his 14 years on the bench, Berger acquired a reputation as a conservative judge who frequently dissented from the majority decisions in the District Court of Columbia Circuit Court, which was dominated by liberal judges. He placed a high priority on an orderly society and was impatient with what he felt was excessive judicial concerns with the rights of individuals accused of crimes. He felt the courts should leave the country's major social and educational problems to the legislative and executive branches of government, but he did not hesitate to be critical of so-called big government and to uphold the right of the individuals to have their say before federal regulatory agencies. Off the bench, Berger took an active part in American Bar Association activities and particularly in the association's programs dealing with reforms of court procedures. He also made an increasing number of speeches, which, in time, marked him as one of the judiciary's most outspoken critics of the Warren Court. Berger, as a judge, did not speak as caustically of the Warren Court as did Nixon. Yet Berger and Nixon often seemed to be saying much the same things about the Supreme Court, and both were aroused mainly by its criminal rights decisions. For example, in September 1968, at a time when the Supreme Court was deeply involved in political controversy because of President Johnson's nomination of Fortas to be Chief Justice, Berger delivered a blistering speech that attracted the attention of Nixon, then the GOP candidate for president. Quote, Over these past dozen years, Justice Berger declared, the Supreme Court has been revising the Code of Criminal Procedure and Evidence piecemeal on a case-by-case basis, on inadequate records and incomplete factual data. I suggest that a large measure of responsibility for some of the bitterness in American life today over the administration of criminal justice can fairly be laid to the Supreme Court. To put this in simple terms, the Supreme Court helped make the problems we now have. End quote. Berger spoke of the Warren Court's quote, almost undignified haste to clothe detailed rules of evidence and police station procedure in the garb of constitutional doctrine. End quote. He also commented in that speech that, quote, too many law professors for a long time gave uncritical applause to anything they could identify as an expansion of individual, quote-unquote, rights, even when the expansion was at the expense of the rights of innocent citizens, 
end quote. In a circuit court opinion, more recent than the speech, Judge Berger declared, quote, The seeming anxiety of judges to protect every accused person from every consequence of his voluntary utterances in a police station is giving rise to myriad rules. We are approaching the predicament of the centipede on the flypaper. Each time one leg is placed to give support for relief of the leg already stuck, another becomes captive, and soon all are securely immobilized, end quote. The very basic contrast between the philosophies of Earl Warren and Warren Berger concerning the role of the Supreme Court in the federal system was vividly demonstrated in connection with the lawsuit in which Adam Clayton Powell challenged the constitutionality of his exclusion from the House of Representatives. A federal district court dismissed the suit. The Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia affirmed the dismissal. The appellate court's opinion, written by Judge Berger, held that courts should not decide such quote-unquote political questions. A ruling in Powell's favor, Berger wrote, quote, would inevitably bring about a direct confrontation with a co-equal branch, and if that did not indicate a lack of respect due to that branch, it would be a gesture hardly comporting with our view of separate branches of the federal establishment, end quote. Anyway, Berger added, quote, that each branch may occasionally make errors for which there may be no effective remedy is one of the prices we pay for independence, end quote. When the Supreme Court reversed the decision authored by Berger, Chief Justice Warren, without fear of the consequences of confronting another branch, held that, quote, the Constitution does not vest in the Congress a discretionary power to deny membership by a majority vote, end quote. Berger was the kind of man President Nixon was looking for to be the next Chief Justice. When Nixon and Mitchell, soon after they took office in January 1969, decided that Nixon could not nominate a close personal friend, Berger became a leading candidate on their list. They reread his opinions and speeches and took a closer look by inviting Berger to come to the White House for an apparently routine swearing-in of a group of low-level administration officials. That was in February. Two months later, they looked closer by inviting Judge and Mrs. Berger back to the White House to attend a dinner which also was attended by such old friends as Herbert Brownell and Thomas Dewey. Berger passed all the tests. He probably was not the man Nixon most would have liked to name Chief Justice had Nixon felt entirely free to exercise his personal or political choice. He was a compromise in the sense that he was a man whose conservative philosophy was most like that of President Nixon, and at the same time he was at least vulnerable to attacks of Senate liberals. Berger could not be accused of not wanting the job, or of not being a crony of the president, as Fortas had been a crony of Johnson. His Republican background, his conservative judicial philosophy, and his attacks on the Warren Court were matters of public record. But the philosophy and speeches are not easily attacked in a Senate confirmation hearing. The headlines and popular support that opponents of a nominee must generate are much better made of drastic instances of bad conduct or poor judgment. Berger might be valuable if liberals could mine useful specifics out of the opinions he had written as a circuit court judge. But while the liberals might find some nuggets of potential usefulness, they probably could not locate a rich vein, because the District of Columbia Circuit Court, on which Berger sat, gets relatively few civil rights, labor, or other such cases involving issues that stir liberal passions. So Berger could not be accused by the liberals of being anti-Negro or anti-Union. He could be accused of being against the Warren Court, but that issue belonged not to the liberals, but to Nixon. President Nixon and Attorney General Mitchell had all but decided privately that Berger was their man to be Chief Justice when the Fortis affair burst. 
Even so, the president either had not recognized how totally the Fortis matter had decimated the liberals, or he had decided, out of extreme caution, to take no chances. Whichever the reason, the administration made elaborate efforts to smooth the way for Berger's confirmation. After introducing the nominee on national television, the president took an additional extraordinary step to generate popular and press support for Berger. On May 22, 1969, the day after the television appearance, Nixon called reporters into his office and, in a lengthy, on-the-record briefing, offered what, for any president, was a unique explanation of how and why the nominee was selected. Quote, We have never done this before, the president began. Some of you, I am sure, will find that this does not have immediate news impact. It is more color and background. End quote. Nixon reminded the reporters that, quote, Before the inauguration, I knew that I would have this decision to make. Let me begin by trying to spell out the processes that I went through in making the decision. End quote. Nixon explained the nature of the chief justiceship and his understanding of it. Quote, because of the Fortis matter, he said, I determined that the appointee should not be a personal friend. End quote. He sought a man who would be confirmed, quote, without violent controversy, but a strong vote of approval. End quote. During the campaign, he recalled, quote, I set forth my philosophy. I think I use the term strict constructionist. I happen to believe that the Constitution should be strictly interpreted. End quote. Using the late Justice Frankfurter as an exemplar of the qualities he sought, Nixon said he wanted a Chief Justice who would feel that, quote, it was his responsibility to interpret the Constitution, and it was the right of the Congress to write the laws and have great leeway to write those laws, and he should be very conservative in overthrowing a law passed by the elective representatives at the state or federal level, end quote. Nixon explained that he had passed over Brownell, Mitchell, Dewey, and others who were his personal or political friends, and he said that he had selected Berger on the basis of, quote, my study of his opinions and my knowledge of his views, end quote, which Nixon frankly said, quote, indicate that we happen to share many views, end quote. The president did not mention Berger's role in the Peters case or other elements of their earlier careers. In addition to his meeting with the press, Nixon made plans to marshal the organized bar on behalf of the Berger nomination. Dozens of current and past presidents of the American Bar Association, the Federal Bar Association, and other bar associations inundated the Senate Judiciary Committee with letters and telegrams in support of the nominee. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, during the week that elapsed between the resignation of Fortas and the nomination of Berger, many members of the United States Senate, mindful of how close Fortas had come to being the Chief Justice, were saying publicly that henceforth the Senate must give long and careful consideration to anyone, any president, nominated to sit on the Supreme Court. But the consideration they gave to the nomination of Warren Berger was not long or careful. The Judiciary Committee took up the Berger nomination on June 3rd. It convened at 10.35 a.m. and was finished at 12.20 p.m. The conservative and the liberal members of the committee were fully aware of Berger's speeches and writings. Berger was there to answer the senator's questions, but there were almost none. The conservatives made reference to his speeches and writings for the purpose of expressing their approval. Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, for instance, said in his soft southern drawl, quote, I congratulate you and President Nixon upon your selection as Chief Justice. End quote. Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina expressed his belief that, quote, We are very fortunate in having one who has manifested his devotion to the Constitution and to the law. End quote. Among the liberals, Senator Edward Kennedy of Massachusetts had, quote, no questions, end quote. 
Senator Birch Bayh of Indiana asked no questions. Senator Joseph Tidings of Maryland engaged the nominee in a brief bit of pleasant conversation about court administration. Then the committee unanimously voted to recommend confirmation of Berger. The nomination was called up to the Senate floor on June 9th, and the nomination was confirmed by a vote of 74 to 3. The three dissenting senators were Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota, Stephen Young of Ohio, and Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin, independent-minded Democratic liberals in the extreme. The speed and near-unanimity with which the Senate confirmed Berger were astonishing. The Senate had considered Earl Warren's nomination for five months before confirming him. It had considered Abe Fortas' nomination to be Chief Justice for longer than three months before rejecting him. It confirmed the Berger nomination in 18 days. In view of what went before and what came after the nomination of Warren Earl Berger, the story of his confirmation was an aberration in the larger story of the struggle for control of the Supreme Court. The speed with which the Senate moved and the very lopsided vote by which it confirmed the new Chief Justice can be attributed only to the Fortis affair and the state of voicelessness and impotence in which it left the liberals. The decline and fall of Abe Fortas, particularly at this time and place in the Supreme Court's history, was, then, much more than a personal tragedy. End of chapter 8 Chief Justice Burr. Yeah. Hello. Good morning, Mr. President. Well, I understood you uh, called yesterday to, on the New Year, and I should have called you. Well, not at all. Yeah. Just, yeah. And I just wanted to... How are you, how you feeling? Oh, just fine. Yeah. And you look yeah. set? Yeah, well, we got the... My gosh, did you go to the game? No. no. I haven't been to... I never go to those games because, uh, tell you what, I don't is that... Uh, but they're sellouts. I went to one, uh, Oklahoma, and, I mean, I mean uh, Texas and Arkansas about three years ago, and the problem was that it really caused so much commotion because it, 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 it over 100 people have to go when I go, 60 press and 40 Secret Service. Well, that just takes 100 seats away from people that just die. And if you can could, you could see it on television, I went up to Camp David and I just saw it up there. Well, you, I was working up there anyway. The instant replay is much better. It's the only way to see a game. Of course, there's some something to the excitement of hearing the oh, audience. Yeah. There. Well, I haven't gone to one for years. I, <laughs> I, I, I used yeah. to yesterday just the way you did. I yeah. Down here at nine o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Worked all day. That's right. Even missed the game. This is the time to actually in these high, these periods like this when people are all gone. Uh, I'm just uh, been in the office today and yesterday, and uh, you can just get up. You, you get a lot of the paperwork done that you just have set, put aside. Say, so, well, I'll do that someday when I get a few minutes. Yeah. You know. Well, <laughs> I wanted to start the year with a clean, empty box. I do it every time, yeah. and my box is my box is just as clean as it can be. I unfortunately didn't get out all my opinions, but I got all the little stuff yeah. out of the way. So now the decks are cleared for another. Now, now, now you can now you, now you can now you get your mind cleared so that you can make the big decisions. Yeah. <laughs> One's coming out pretty soon, too. Oh, boy. I'm boy. struggling with this pornography thing. I don't know whether, uh -oh. I don't know how we're coming out, but uh, yeah. I'm yeah. coming out hard on it Good. myself, Good. whether I get the support or not. You're right. Uh, well, I I feel, of course, I'm, I'm square. I'm like Alan. I'm a square. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm, on that. I mean, I, don't, I, I mean a square in, in the sense that they just, it's a, I've read those cases when I uh, did the Hill versus Time thing. No. And, uh, you know, because it, it relates to the whole freedom of the press thing. And, 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 and let's face it, they've just gone overboard, that's all. It's always a question of balance. I mean, I, I mean uh, maybe you can, uh, you can they say, they, they go back to these uh, 16th century stuff and say that, that 
Corp. Yeah, good God. One of the biggest frauds. Ever. Oh, that was, a, that was a Brennan opinion, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a phrase that they uh, that emanated from some of the campuses uh, yeah. in this period. And, Which uh, makes social purpose. <laughs>
Nolan did it in 56. But it doesn't make, uh, it's, it's a matter of, uh, it varies. And, uh, and I think it's really neater to have you do both. Yes, it, it produces one more body on the platform. That's right. <laughs> Hadn't thought of that. Hadn't thought of that. The space is going to be well, premium. That's right. Well, we'll look forward to seeing you. And we're looking forward to seeing one, you. One of the beauties of my oath, you know, it's very short. His is quite long. His is the same. You know the difference? Yeah. Did you notice the difference? Yeah. His is that long, and you know that you give to senators. Yeah. Uh, but mine is very short. I just def I swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. It's about seven lines long. Yeah. I can e I, even I can remember that. <laughs> okay. Chapter 9 of God Save This Honorable Court, The Supreme Court Crisis. I'm Mike Overby, and this is an Amicus Lectio special for Ipse Dixit Selects Phonographica. If you'd like your scholarship on this podcast, you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at Amicus Lectio, or at Lethargilistic. God Save This Honorable Court, The Supreme Court Crisis, by Lewis M. Kohlmeyer, Jr., Chapter 9. Nixon Scores in Court Politics is a slippery, treacherous business. The president one day is hailed by almost all as a hero, and the next he is pummeled with criticism by some and with revolutionary obscenities by others. He reads the newspapers or watches television, he ponders the latest findings of his favorite public opinion poll, and he listens to his chosen advisors but the view from the White House is distant. The moods of the country are as many, as complex, and as changeable as the colors in a child's kaleidoscope. The voters seem fickle, and those who sit in Congress constantly turn in hot pursuit of the voters. Sometimes, by the time the president sees beyond the iron fences and guardhouses that surround the White House, it is too late. It was too late for Lyndon Johnson. Richard Nixon, of all people, should have known the uncertain nature of the business, inasmuch as his political career had been a slippery roller coaster ride up to the vice presidency in 1952, down to defeat when he ran for the presidency in 1960, down deeper when the voters of California refused to even elect him governor in 1962, and then way back up into the White House in 1968. But President Nixon in his hero days either forgot or chose not to remember. Because Nixon, in his 1968 campaign, had made the Warren Court one of the issues that carried him into the White House, the speed and decisiveness with which he won Senate confirmation of his choice of Earl Warren's successor was taken inside the White House and outside also as a major victory for the new president, gained after less than five months in office. The hero decided he would take full advantage of his triumph. Earl Warren had agreed with Nixon the previous winter that he would retire as Chief Justice when the court finished the work of its current term. After the Senate confirmed Warren Burger on June 9th, Chief Justice Warren and his seven remaining brothers of the court sat another Monday morning to hand down decisions on the remaining cases they had heard, and they fixed June 23, 1969, as the final day of the term. A few minutes before 10 o'clock on that Monday morning, Chief Justice Warren left his office and for the last time walked the few steps to the oak-paneled room to the rear of the marble courtroom where the justices put on their robes before they stepped through the velvet curtains. At almost the same minute, Richard Nixon left his Oval Office at the White House, stepped into a black limousine, and was driven along the route to the Supreme Court that his Attorney General, on another mission to the Chief Justice, had taken but seven weeks earlier. The route between the White House and Capitol Hill, where both Congress and the Supreme Court sit, is a symbolic pavement. It has been traveled by innumerable presidential inaugural parades, military processions, and other triumphant marches, 
and, in more recent years, by massive protest demonstrations. Nixon was not the first president to ride from the White House to the Supreme Court, and, as when other presidents had made this particular journey, there were no crowds and there was no fanfare. Nevertheless, President Nixon's triumphal ride was a historic occasion. There are strict constructionists who believe that democracy is best served when there is no social or political intercourse among the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, and no personal communication between individual members of the three branches that would create the opportunity for undue influence or the appearance of control by one branch of another. Throughout the turmoil over Earl Warren's successor, lip service was paid to the separation of powers doctrine as written by the Founding Fathers. For instance, there were the conservative senators who, in filibustering to death President Johnson's nomination of Abe Fortas in 1968, had argued that Fortas should not be Chief Justice because his closeness to Johnson might allow the executive branch to influence the judiciary. Then, only a few weeks before, there were the liberal senators who wanted a Senate investigation to determine whether Attorney General Mitchell's mission to Chief Justice Warren to lay before him additional information concerning Fortas and Wolfson constituted a violation of the separation of powers doctrine. For his part, President Nixon also seemed in complete agreement with the Founding Fathers. The President, in the course of his extraordinary meeting with the press after he had announced the Berger nomination, said to reporters of Warren Berger, quote, While we happen to share many views, I think it is vitally important that the Chief Justice and all judges of the Supreme Court know that they are absolutely independent of the executive and legislative, end quote. There have been times in history, most notably during the eras of the Warren and Marshall Courts, when the strict constructionist view prevailed. The President and members of the Supreme Court came together at presidential inaugurations, and thereafter intercourse was limited largely to state funerals and dinners. But, the Founding Fathers notwithstanding, the separation of powers doctrine, like all the other great principles set forth in the Constitution, takes its contemporary meaning from what men say and do. There have been throughout history, and, despite the Fortis debacle, there will be in the future, instances of continuing private communication between a president and an individual member of the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Ellsworth, in 1800, gave his resignation to his friend, President Adams. President Lincoln, in 1862, named to the court David Davis, a personal and political crony who did not become a great justice and who retained a close personal relationship with the Lincoln family. William Howard Taft, after he had served as president, was named Chief Justice by President Harding in 1921, and Taft thereafter maintained an active relationship with the White House. President Franklin Roosevelt and Felix Frankfurter, whom Roosevelt appointed to the court in 1939, maintained a remarkably personal correspondence, which seems to have been inspired more by the justices' almost fawning admiration of the president than by Roosevelt's initiative. At various times of national crisis or acute presidential need, presidents have also called upon individual members of the court to perform public services that have no relationship with the constitutional role of the court, but, paradoxically, have much to do with the public image of the court as an independent and honorable institution. Franklin Roosevelt summoned Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone to assess responsibility for the unpreparedness of American military forces when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941. After World War II, President Truman designated Associate Justice Robert H. Jackson as chief prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials of Nazi war criminals. And after John Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas in 1963, President Johnson prevailed upon Chief Justice Warren to chair the commission which was to investigate the murder and still the rumors and fears that were sweeping the nation.
Various students of the law have criticized each of the various known instances in history of private and public intercourse between the presidents and individual members of the Supreme Court, and certainly some of the members of the court have engaged in such political entanglements with great reluctance. Footnote. Warren reportedly refused to preside over an investigation of the Kennedy assassination when first asked. He agreed after Johnson personally insisted that it was Warren's patriotic duty to undertake the investigation. End footnote. Whether such relationships with the president, in fact, have a compromising effect on the court, would seem to depend on the men and the circumstances. The public can never know the whole truth, but clearly all such relationships are not wholly innocent. Disclosures made after his death revealed that Chief Justice Taft maintained active relationships with certain members of Congress, as well as with President Harding, and that Taft obtained not only legislation affecting the judiciary, but also the nomination of several new justices he wanted on the court. Taft's political involvement therefore had some effects on the institutional independence of the court. Since no other member in recent history has brought to the court the political experience that Taft carried with him, presumably none has had similar opportunity for involvement with the executive and legislative branches. In any event, each of the affairs has been a unique personal relationship between a president and a justice, and, so far as the Supreme Court as an institution is concerned, no president yet has been able to pack the court with his cronies. Moreover, the relationships, by their nature, are passing affairs, because presidents go, and the justices they appointed remain. There is also, of course, the kind of intercourse between the president and the Supreme Court that takes place in public and involves the court as a whole, but hardline strict constructionists take offense nonetheless. At one end of the spectrum of such encounters are state dinners and funerals. At the other are overt, widely publicized presidential attacks on the court. Fortunately, presidents have not often found it expedient or necessary, as Franklin Roosevelt and Richard Nixon did, to influence the court to the extent of mustering popular opinion against it. But, as those two proved, a president can be highly effective when he addresses the court from the stump, the lectern, or the television tube. Strict constructionism notwithstanding, in rather recent years the president and the court have come together in public settings that fall somewhere between the extremes of state dinners and funerals on one hand, and publicized harangues on the other. For example, all the members of the Supreme Court, dressed in their black robes, have become dependable front-row attendants in the House chamber of the Capitol when the President delivers his annual State of the Union address to Congress and to a primetime evening television audience. Footnote, radio and television have helped to bring the three branches of government together, it would seem. For a century before the administration of Franklin D. Roosevelt, most Presidents did not appear in Congress but instead sent their messages to be read for them. Roosevelt began the modern practice of appearing before both houses of Congress in joint session to deliver his messages, which were broadcast. End footnote. In modern times, presidents have come to the Supreme Court to see one or more of their nominees sworn in. President Truman started the practice, and it was followed by Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson. Since there is no television in the court's chamber, each president came quietly, sat amidst the other spectators, and quietly left, but each felt the trip worthwhile. When Richard Nixon stepped out of his limousine at the Supreme Court building and made his way into the chamber, he made the trip more worthwhile still by becoming the first president in American history to stand before the long mahogany bench and address the Supreme Court. It was a historic day. Until Richard Nixon, no president since Franklin Roosevelt had entered the White House to face a Supreme Court, which he regarded as hostile. Roosevelt, after he entered the White House in 1933, 
had had to wait four years until the first court vacancy occurred for him to fill, and in those years his only recourse was to bear down on the court's majority with all the influence that fireside chats and court-packing proposals could contain. Roosevelt had had to wait eight years to name a chief justice. Nixon not only had the opportunity to name a new chief justice awaiting him when he first entered the White House, but after a mere five months in office, he had a second vacancy awaiting his pleasure. Nixon sat quietly for 17 minutes as the Warren Court announced its final decisions, and then Chief Justice Warren recognized the president. Nixon rose and stepped to the lectern from which all lawyers addressed the court. It stands facing the mahogany bench, immediately in front of the center chair occupied by the Chief Justice. Quote, Chief Justice, may it please the court. End quote. The president began. In addressing Earl Warren, the seven associate justices, in the empty ninth seat, President Nixon did not crow triumphantly. Now he had no need to bear down on a hostile majority. To the contrary, he acknowledged the separation of powers doctrine and paid homage to appearances by stating that he was addressing the court not as the President of the United States, but as a lawyer who some years before had been admitted, like thousands of others, to practice before the Supreme Court, and indeed on two occasions in 1966 had stood at this very lectern to argue cases before the Supreme Court. Nixon, with calm and dignity, then delivered a six-minute oration in honor of the departing Chief Justice, Earl Warren. Quote, Looking back, end quote, on those two occasions in 1966, at a time when Nixon was a lawyer in private practice in New York, quote, I can say, Mr. Chief Justice, that there is only one ordeal which is more challenging than a presidential press conference, and that is to appear before the Supreme Court of the United States. End quote. He had come, Nixon said, to extend to Earl Warren, quote, the best wishes of the bar and the nation for the time ahead, end quote. Warren had held positions in local, state, and national government for 52 years, and, quote, the nation is grateful for that service, end quote. Throughout those years, Nixon declared, Earl Warren embraced, quote-unquote, humanity in, quote, the dedication to his family, his personal family, to the great American family, to the family of man, the nation is grateful for that example of humanity which the Chief Justice has given to us and to the world. These sixteen years, in which Earl Warren sat as Chief Justice, without doubt will be described by historians as years of greater change in America than any in our country. End quote. But with change there must be continuity, the President said. Quote, to the Chief Justice of the United States, all of us are grateful today that his example, the example of dignity, the example of integrity, the example of fairness as the chief law official of this country, has helped to keep America on the path of continuity and change, which is so essential for our progress. End quote. Nixon had neither lauded strict constructionism nor damned judicial activism. He had mentioned none of the things he had told the press in explaining his selection of Warren Burger to succeed Earl Warren. There was no rancor, and only the slightest reminder that there had been a partisan political fight the year before over Warren's successor. There was, in the court, as Nixon spoke, the same air of momentary conciliation that pervades presidential inaugurations. But in Chief Justice Warren's reply to the president, who remained standing a dozen feet away as Warren sat, there was a reminder to Nixon and to the nation of the role of the court in a constitutional government, calmly but pointedly. Warren defended the Warren Court. Quote, Mr. President, your words are most generous and are greatly appreciated, I assure you. 
I accept your personal, kind words, but in doing so I must confess that I sense in your presence here and in the words you have spoken your great appreciation of the value of this court in the life of our nation and the fact that it is one of the three coordinate branches of the government and that it is a continuing body. I might point out to you, because you might not have looked into the matter, that it is a continuing body to the extent that if any American at any time in the history of the court, 180 years, had come to this court, he would have found one of seven men on the court, the last of whom, of course, is our senior justice, Mr. Justice Black. Because at any time an American might come here, he would find one of seven men on the bench in itself, shows how continuing this body is, and how it is that the court develops consistently the eternal principles of our Constitution in solving the problems of the day. We, of course, venerate the past, but our focus is on the problems of the day, and of the future, as far as we can foresee it. I cannot escape the feeling that in one sense, at least, this court is similar to your own great office, and that is that so many times it speaks the last word in great governmental affairs. The responsibility of speaking the last word, for not only 200 million people, but for those to follow us, is a very awesome responsibility. It is a responsibility that is made more difficult in this court because we have no constituency. We serve no majority. We serve no minority. We serve only the public interest as we see it, guided only by the Constitution and our own consciences. And conscience, sometimes, is a very severe taskmaster. But the court through all the years has pursued a more or less steady course, and in my opinion has progressed and has applied the principles set forth in those 5,000 general words of the Constitution in a manner that is consistent with the public interest, and consistent with our future so far as it can be discerned. We do not always agree. I hope the court will never agree on all things. If it ever agrees on all things, I am sure that its virility will have been sapped, because it is composed of nine independent men, who have no one to be responsible to, except their own consciences. It is not likely ever, with human nature as it is, for nine men to agree always on the most important and controversial things of life. If it ever comes to such a pass, I would say that the court will have lost its strength, and will no longer be a real force in the affairs of our country. But so long as it is manned by men like those who have preceded us, and by others like those who sit today, I have no fear of that ever happening. I am happy today to leave the service of my country with a feeling of deep friendship for all these men whom I have served with for sixteen years, in spite of the fact that we have disagreed on many occasions. In the last analysis, the fact that we have often disagreed is not of great importance. The most important thing is that every man will have given his best thought and consideration to the great problems that have confronted us." End quote. Warren, looking straight into Nixon's eyes, thus tried to warn the president, quote, because you might not have looked into the matter, end quote, of the great danger which can confront the nation when the Supreme Court is shorn of its constitutional independence, its continuity, and its essential conscience. Warren's words, spoken without a show of emotion towards the man whom he had known for so long, and who still was not a friend, will be quoted years hence as a classic defense of the independence of the Supreme Court. Perhaps such words are not heard by the ears for which they are intended, but the truth of Warren's statement was so fundamental, and the conflict between majoritarian rule and individual rights was so basically a part of the American fabric, that Chief Justice Marshall, 145 years earlier, 
answered his critics with an opinion that serves equally well as an answer to Richard Nixon and like purveyors of presidential power. The Constitution, Marshall wrote, quote, contains an enumeration of powers expressly granted by the people to their government. It has been said that these powers ought to be construed strictly. But why? Is there one sentence in the Constitution which gives countenance to this rule? End quote. There is not, quote, one sentence in the Constitution that prescribes this rule, Marshall answered. What do gentlemen mean by a strict construction? If they contend for that narrow construction which would deny to government those powers which the words of the grant import, which would cripple the government and render it unequal to the objects for which it is declared to be instituted, then we cannot perceive the propriety of this strict construction. As men, whose intentions require no concealment, generally employ the words which most directly and aptly express the ideas they intend to convey, the enlightened patriots who framed our Constitution must be understood to have employed words in their natural sense, and to have intended what they have said. End quote. After President Nixon had addressed the court and Chief Justice Warren had responded to him, Warren administered the oath to his successor, Warren E. Berger, and thus did Earl Warren retire on June 23, 1969. After that day, Warren thought he might go home to retire, leaving behind the recent turmoil in Washington. He did return to California, and there were reports in Washington that he and Mrs. Warren were looking for a house in Sacramento. But he decided to come back to Washington, where he and Mrs. Warren stayed, living where they had lived for 16 years, in an apartment suite at the rambling old Sheraton Park Hotel, just off Connecticut Avenue. As the weeks and months passed, the former Chief Justice took on more speaking engagements, and his speeches were not in a happy vein. He refused to comment directly on the President or the court he had left, but he said, quote, We have just gone through a great national campaign in which the major issue announced was law and order. The entire campaign was one of harsh rhetoric and a search for scapegoats, end quote. On another occasion, he said, quote, Still 102 years after the 14th Amendment was adopted, we find that hundreds of thousands of black children are denied equal opportunities of education. Like numbers of adults are denied the privilege of voting. Litigants, witnesses, and jurors are deliberately humiliated in courtrooms. People are denied the right to live wherever they choose. And a myriad of other indignities are imposed on millions merely because of their color. End quote. And on a third occasion, he said, quote, There has been a great upsurge of demand for liberty everywhere. But the very demand of those who have suffered oppression through the ages has also triggered activities of repression. End quote. It could not be doubted that Earl Warren's retirement day of reproachment with Richard Nixon had quickly passed. And in time, it was said among Warren's friends that the former Chief Justice's feelings had turned to bitterness. President Nixon on that day returned in his limousine to the White House and did nothing for nearly two months about the vacancy Fortas had left on the court. There was no reason to hurry, and there were no elaborate preparations to be made this time. The court was adjourned until the first Monday in October, and the president had until then to run through the motions of nomination and confirmation of his man to fill the ninth seat. Nixon and Mitchell had fixed their standards for selecting court nominees when they had selected Chief Justice Berger. The selection process had been unnecessarily laborious, but highly successful, and certainly need not be repeated now. As the president had explained to the press in May, by his standards, no cronies would be appointed to the court. His nominees would be picked from among sitting federal judges, quote, who have proved themselves on the line of battle, on the firing line, to be capable, able judges, who have a track record, end quote. 
they would go through no, quote, political clearance process, end quote, and they would be selected for their, quote, competence representing all segments of the country, end quote, and not because they are representatives of any, quote, racial, religious, or geographical, end quote, section of the nation. But as Nixon and Mitchell approached the vacant ninth seat, they did insist on a nominee who was a representative of a particular geographic and racial segment of the nation, the White South, and in doing so, they utilized a particular kind of political clearance process. As it unfolded, their effort to fill the seat was marked with an especial irony, for their success in replacing Earl Warren, flowing in large part from the Fortis debacle, made Nixon and Mitchell bold. Unwilling to give Fortis his due, however, the bolder they became, the more they fumbled. The president waited until August 18th to send to the Senate a nomination to fill the Fortis vacancy, even though Nixon and Mitchell apparently had decided on their choice in May before the Fortis seat had cooled. Completely in contrast with the elaborate security measures Nixon and Mitchell took in connection with the Berger nomination, the identity of their new nominee became public knowledge around Washington, so much so that opposition began to sprout weeks before it was announced. But neither the prior public knowledge nor the budding opposition bothered the president as, on August 18, 1969, he casually announced from his vacation home in San Clemente, California, his nomination of Clement F. Hainsworth, Jr., to be Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. End of chapter 9. I think that, uh, really, the primary thrust of the argument against Hainsworth is disagreement with his judicial philosophy. Uh, so far, it's been satisfactorily proven, I believe, by the American Bar Association and by others that his business activities had no influence over his judicial decisions. So I think it's primarily an ideological thing. I resent this because I have never uh, voted against uh, a nominee on the basis of his judicial philosophy, but I've always voted for him on the basis of his, of his credentials in the legal profession. I voted for Thurgood Marshall. I voted for Arthur Goldberg. And I resent it now that an attack should be made against Hainsworth because he's a little bit more strict constructionist philosophy. How much do his civil rights cases decisions actually have? Well, I think an examination of his civil rights uh, decisions would indicate that he's been pretty moderate, been pretty fair. And I think, of course, that is, however, a major factor because a lot of people in the civil rights groups in insist on having somebody who is completely consonant with their own philosophy. Chapter 10 of God Save This Honorable Court, The Supreme Court Crisis. I'm Mike Overby, and this is an Amicus Lectio special for Ipse Dixit's Lex Phonographica. If you'd like your scholarship read on this podcast, you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at Amicus Lectio, or at Lethargilistic. God Save This Honorable Court, The Supreme Court Crisis, by Lewis M. Kohlmeyer, Jr. Chapter 10, Nixon Fumbles. The senior senator from South Carolina, Strom Thurmond, a Republican, introduced Clement Hainsworth to the Senate Judiciary Committee with the oratorical assurance that, quote, he is a gentleman, a scholar, end quote. The junior senator from South Carolina, Ernest F. Hollings, a Democrat but no less enthusiastic for all that, declared in his introduction that Hainsworth would be, quote, a brilliant addition to the court, end quote. Clement F. Hainsworth, Jr., age 57, 
was a gentleman of the Old South who smilingly looked at the members of the Judiciary Committee from behind rimless spectacles and spoke softly and courteously, even to the most disagreeably liberal of the senators. He was an erect, old family pillar of the white social and business establishment of the city of Greenville, South Carolina, population 58,161, a textile manufacturing center in the newly industrializing South. Greenville was the city where he had been born, where he lived, and where surely he would be buried. Four generations of Hainsworths, lawyers and South Carolinians all, had preceded him. He had gone to school in Georgia, come home to attend Furman University in Greenville, and then went north to Cambridge to get a law degree from Harvard University. After Harvard, he followed his father and his grandfather into the Greenville law firm of Hainsworth, Perry, Bryant, Marion, and Johnstone, which was said to be the largest law firm in South Carolina. He was wealthy, and he once had been a Democrat like his forefathers, but he supported Dwight Eisenhower for the presidency in 1952 and 1956, and in 1957, President Eisenhower appointed him to the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Fourth Circuit is based in Richmond, Virginia, and it covers the states of Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia. In the small world of national politics, it happened that President Eisenhower also had promoted to the Fourth Circuit Simon E. Soboloff, after Soboloff, as Solicitor General, had refused, and Warren E. Berger had agreed to sign the government's brief in the Peters case. So Hainsworth and Soboloff, for longer than a decade, had sat together on the Fourth Circuit. The selection of Clement Hainsworth to replace Abe Fortas demonstrated the strength of President Nixon's determination to gain control of the court and turn it rightward. Emboldened by the substantial majority by which the Senate had confirmed Berger, Nixon nominated Hainsworth with the dual purposes of bringing a strict constructionist to the court and paying off the campaign debt to the South. But, as Nixon and Mitchell failed to realize when they nominated Berger how completely the Fortas affair had devastated the liberals, now they failed to recognize that the Fortas matter was passed, and the liberals were again prepared to fight. Nixon had known of Hainsworth, but the president did not know him nearly so well as Senators Thurmond and Hollings knew him. Strom Thurmond had played a significant Southern role in Nixon's 1968 presidential campaign. Thurmond, who had been the state's rights or Dixiecrat candidate for the presidency in 1948, and had carried four Southern states, once had been a Democrat, but he switched to the Republican Party in 1964. Hollings was younger and still a Democrat. They both recommended Hainsworth to Nixon for the Fortis vacancy on the Supreme Court. Judge Hainsworth's record on the Fourth Circuit was one, quote, which no fair and just and honorable man should oppose, end quote, said Thurmond. Quote, Judge Hainsworth will give balance where balance is needed, end quote, said Harlings. Nixon and Mitchell read Judge Hainsworth's record, and they wholeheartedly agreed. Many school desegregation and other racial issues, of course, had come before the Fourth Circuit in the years after the Warren Court, in 1954, held the separate but equal doctrine unconstitutional and Hainsworth had a long track record that placed him far to the right of the Warren Court majority. He was no redneck racist. He was a conservative, a strict constructionist, and a representative of the South who would give balance to the Supreme Court where, in the eyes of President Nixon and the White South, balance for so long had been so much needed. By August 18th, when the President announced the Hainsworth nomination, many others in Washington, liberals and conservatives, also had read Judge Hainsworth's opinions on the Fourth Circuit. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People announced that it found his record, quote, one of resistance to the movement for racial equality, end quote. 
Other liberal groups, including the American Jewish Committee, the American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, and Americans for Democratic Action, also found reason to object. Nixon, vacationing in California, was not dissuaded from making the nomination, and among political experts who remained in hot, muggy Washington in mid-August 1969, the nomination seemed reasonably certain to win Senate confirmation. But, unfortunately for Hainsworth's admirers, the start of confirmation hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee was further delayed by the death of Senator Everett McKinley Dirksen, and liberals put the additional time to good use by digging deeper into the record of Judge Hainsworth. When the Senate hearings finally got underway on September 16th, only three weeks remained before Chief Justice Berger would open the Supreme Court's new term. Senator Eastland of Mississippi, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, gaveled the hearings to a start, and, after the introductions by Senators Thurmond and Hollings, Eastland dispensed with further pleasantries and proceeded directly into a prepared defense of Judge Hainsworth. The committee proceeded directly into combat because organized labor, Negro groups, and other liberal organizations already had begun to air their charges against Hainsworth in the press and on the Senate floor. In the Senate, the leadership of the opposition fell to Birch Bayh, a junior Democratic senator from Indiana, largely because he was a liberal, he was friendly with labor leaders, and he was politically ambitious. He was also the most available senator among the Liberal Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Among the other liberals on the committee, Senator Edward M. Kennedy of Massachusetts could not undertake the assignment because of personal problems. On the previous July 18th, a car driven by Senator Kennedy had plunged off a bridge into a tidal pool on Chappaquiddick Island, Massachusetts, and the body of Mary Jo Kopechny was later found in the car. Senator Joseph D. Tidings of Maryland might have led the opposition, but he was busy with a re-election campaign. Senator Philip A. Hart of Michigan was liberal enough, but perhaps not sufficiently ambitious or tenacious to tangle with Nixon. So Senator Bayh, a handsome, ambitious, 41-year-old lawyer, was the logical choice to head up the opposition to Hainsworth. Under questioning by Senator Bayh, it quickly became apparent that Judge Hainsworth was indeed a man of substantial wealth, an investor in common and preferred stocks in some 40 large and small corporations, an owner of convertible debentures and tax-exempt bonds. Wealth alone, of course, does not disqualify any man for high public office, including the offices of federal judge and Supreme Court justice, and the liberals had had to dig much deeper. What they had come up with did not concern any of Hainsworth's investments in large national corporations, but the relatively small sum of $3,000 he had invested in a one-seventh interest in Carolina Vendomatic Company, a private corporation organized in 1950 by Hainsworth and a small group of Greenville friends to enter the business of operating automatic coffee vending machines in bus stations, textile mills, and the like. The business grew quite rapidly as new mills and other industrial plants came to South Carolina, and Carolina Vendomatic expanded with machines that dispensed many kinds of food products. In fact, Carolina Vendomatic grew so rapidly that in 1964, when it was acquired by a larger company, Automatic Retailers of America, Incorporated, Hainsworth received for his one-seventh interest in Vendomatic 14,173 shares in ARA, which he sold for $437,000. Some of those details of the judge's wise $3,000 investment were drawn from him by liberal members of the Judiciary Committee, but it was not simply the money on which the liberals built their case. Rather, the liberals were able to show that Hainsworth, after he became a judge in 1957, remained a vice president and director of Carolina Vendomatic until 1963, 
and therefore to allege that maybe his interest in the company indirectly influenced certain decisions he made as a member of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. When Hainsworth went on the bench in 1957, he resigned as director of a number of corporations because, he told the Judiciary Committee, quote, somebody might attempt to influence what I did as a judge by trying to throw business or favors to a concern of which I was a director, end quote. But he didn't then resign from Carolina Vendomatic because it was so, quote-unquote, small. He related that he resigned in 1963 when the Judiciary Conference of the United States, a representative conference of federal judges, took official note of the fact that many judges were on the boards of directors of banks and other enterprises, and recommended that no judge remain an officer or director of a profit-making enterprise. The litigation on which liberals hung their allegation against Hainsworth had begun in 1956. The Textile Workers' Union that year won an election to represent workers at Darlington Manufacturing Company, which operated a textile mill in Darlington, South Carolina. The company closed its plant, and the union filed an unfair labor practice charge with the National Labor Relations Board. The NLRB found the Darlington Company and Deering Milliken Incorporated, a larger textile maker which owned 40% of Darlington's stock, had committed an unfair labor practice and ordered that Darlington's employees receive back pay or preference in obtaining jobs at other Deering Milliken plants. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, with Judge Hainsworth concurring, rejected the NLRB decision and held that Darlington had unqualified right to close down its only plant. The case then climbed to the Supreme Court, which in 1965 vacated the Fourth Circuit's decision and remanded the case to the NLRB, holding that the Darlington closing would be an unfair labor practice if Darlington were found to be, quote, an integral part of the Deering Milliken enterprise, end quote. The NLRB so found, and in 1968, some 12 years after the litigation began, it ended when the Fourth Circuit, with Judge Hainsworth concurring, upheld the NLRB. Senate liberals went to the trouble of reconstructing the Darlington litigation for the purpose of alleging that Judge Hainsworth's decisions in the case may have been influenced because Carolina Vendomatic did business with Deering Milliken. They drew from Hainsworth the information that Carolina Vendomatic, in 1963, was providing full food vending service in 46 industrial plants, three of which belonged to Deering Milliken. Quote, Did Deering Milliken throw you any business at any time? End quote. Chairman Eastland asked the witness. Quote, no, sir, end quote, answered Judge Hainsworth. But the liberals pressed their Carolina Vendomatic case against Hainsworth anyway. With Birch Bayh heading the pack, they questioned Clement Hainsworth as tenaciously as the conservatives had dogged Abe Fortas. The liberals proved little, but they made headlines with Carolina Vendomatic. Then they moved on to another case and made more headlines. The liberals dug up a 1968 decision in which the Fourth Circuit, with Judge Hainsworth concurring, had decided that Brunswick Corporation was entitled to recover a small amount of money representing its investment in the equipment of a bankrupt bowling alley in South Carolina. Hainsworth owned 1,000 shares of the 18 million outstanding shares of Brunswick, a large national manufacturer of bowling equipment. The liberals thus attempted to allege that Hainsworth's decision in the case may have been influenced by his stock ownership, or that the judge, at the very least, should have disqualified himself from participation in the Brunswick case, as well as the Darlington case. In response to these liberal allegations, the Judiciary Committee brought in as an expert witness John P. Frank, a lawyer from Phoenix, Arizona, who testified that Judge Hainsworth was under no obligation to disqualify himself, 
and said no federal judge, quote, has ever disqualified in circumstances in the remotest degree like those here, end quote. The liberals countered by bringing George Meany to the witness chair. Meany, the president of the American Federation of Labor Congress of Industrial Organizations, used the Darlington case as a springboard to reach the conclusions that Hainsworth not only had, quote, demonstrated a lack of ethical standards, end quote, but also that, quote, his decisions prove him to be anti-labor, end quote. If these building blocks of the liberal case against Hainsworth seemed insubstantial and inconclusive, they probably were no more so than those the conservatives had piled on the nomination of Abe Fortas to be chief justice. Now as then, each specific allegation made headlines, and the headlines blended together into a dark, murky suggestion of a conflict of interest between private wealth on the one hand and judicial ethics on the other. Still, if the Senate liberals had no more evidence, Hainsworth might have been confirmed, and the liberals in fact did not dig up much more in the way of headline-grabbing allegations that related to Judge Hainsworth's stocks and bonds and debentures. But as the Judiciary Committee's hearings moved into the fifth and then the sixth long day, the more partisanly political and sensational charges against Hainsworth began to give way to the more fundamental and substantial elements of the liberal case against the nominee and the essentially ideological basis of contest began to take shape. In such moments of high political and ideological tension in Washington, the most telling testimony often comes from unexpected sources who put into words the indignation felt by many who have been on the sidelines. Senator Griffin of Michigan played somewhat this role in the fight against Fortas's nomination to be Chief Justice. Representative William Fitz Ryan, a 47-year-old liberal Democrat from New York City, and the son of a well-known judge, made a similarly unexpected contribution to the fight against Hainsworth. Ryan asked and received permission to testify before the Senate committee, and he addressed himself to what the Hainsworth nomination really was about. Quote, The Supreme Court is a crucial and powerful institution in our society, he said. In a period of deep controversy and division in our nation about the direction and speed with which the fundamental American promise of equality and equal rights for all of our citizens is being fulfilled, this nomination is a litmus test of our resolve. End quote. The Nixon administration, Ryan charged, quote, has slowed the already painfully slow process, end quote, of racial desegregation in America, and, quote, in this atmosphere, Judge Hainsworth is appointed. I am sad to say that a study of his record reveals his votes on the bench may be the pivotal steps towards further retrenchment of the fundamental law of our land, end quote. Representative Ryan had researched Judge Hainsworth's opinions in civil rights cases as deeply as the Senate Democrats had dug into the judge's stock holdings. He found that, when the majority of the members of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in 1962 held that the Charlottesville, Virginia School Board could not transfer students out of a school district where racial desegregation was in progress. Judge Hainsworth dissented on the ground that desegregation was a, quote, searing experience, end quote. In the famous case of Prince Edward County, Virginia, where the public schools were closed for four years to avoid desegregation, Judge Hainsworth, in 1963, voted with the majority to deny a federal court hearing to parents of black children, saying, quote, when there is a total cessation of school operation, there is no denial of equal protection of the laws, though the resort of the poor man to an adequate substitute may be more difficult, and the result may be the absence of integrated classrooms in the locality. End quote. The Warren Court soundly reversed Judge Hainsworth in the Prince Edward County case. 
1965, the Warren Court again reversed the majority opinion of the Fourth Circuit, written by Judge Hainsworth, which delayed integration of the schools in Richmond, Virginia. And the Warren Court, in 1968, reversed still another majority opinion, written by Hainsworth, which sanctioned delay in school integration and approved quote-unquote freedom of choice plans to allow white children to elect to transfer out of integrated schools. Judge Hainsworth had participated in various other types of civil rights cases, and his record was not one of total opposition to any expansion of the civil rights of blacks. He seemed more willing to accept the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution in cases which did not require racial integration of black and white children. For instance, he wrote the Fourth Circuit Court's decision, which struck down a white-only membership limitation of the North Carolina Dental Society. But liberals charged that such decisions were exceptions. Judge Hainsworth's track record demonstrated that he spoke for the South as a judicial opponent of the Warren Court's commands that the civil rights of blacks be acknowledged and expanded, much as Judge Warren E. Berger's record demonstrated that he stood in judicial opposition to the Warren Court's expansion of the rights of the criminally accused. Indeed, Hainsworth, who sometimes was in the minority on his own court, was more representative of the reluctant, gradualist approach to civil rights than many federal judges in the South. It was, then, Hainsworth, as a symbol of Southern opposition to the Warren Court, who was scored not only by Representative Ryan, but also by a parade of additional witnesses that appeared before the Judiciary Committee. Representatives of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and the Leadership of Conference on Civil Rights testified that, quote, the nomination of Judge Hainsworth is a deadly blow to the image of the U.S. Supreme Court, end quote. Joseph L. Raw, Jr., a white Washington lawyer and liberal gadfly, testified as counsel of the leadership conference that Hainsworth, quote, is a sort of laundered segregationist, one who would try to have the least forward progress on integration, the most continuation of past segregation, end quote. Five black members of the House of Representatives came in a group to testify, saying, quote, We submit that Judge Hainsworth has played a very prominent role in the 15 years of frustration and delay which have followed, end quote, the Warren Court's historic 1954 decision, which held school desegregation unconstitutional. Quote, we urge you to reject the nomination, end quote. When the Judiciary Committee hearings finally closed on September 26th, the real issue then was clearly drawn. Would the Senate consent to President Nixon's effort to turn the Supreme Court away from the libertarianism which Earl Warren had symbolized? Senator Philip A. Hart, Democrat of Michigan, summed up for the liberals, quote, If I were a fifth-generation white South Carolinian lawyer, I would be amazed if I would have gone any further than Judge Hainsworth. I am sure that our able colleague from South Carolina, Senator Thurmond, would be in accord with Judge Hainsworth. The question is, is that the kind of system that at this moment in history we want to advise and consent to? There is great alienation and hostility in the country. It is not the young alone. It is not the black alone. It is not the poor alone. It has been my feeling that the direction of the Warren Court has strengthened the responsible leadership in this country, which urges that inequalities be corrected within the law. Slowing down the direction of the Warren Court assists only the irresponsible voices. That's my concern. End quote. And Senator Sam J. Irvin Jr., Democrat of North Carolina, summed up for the conservatives, quote, 
I think they ought to take the little school children of America away from the judicial activists and the bureaucrats and give them back to the parents to whom the Lord has given them. End quote. The same day that the Senate hearings ended, President Nixon held a press conference at the White House where he was asked if Judge Hainsworth, quote, has become controversial enough to lead you to withdraw the nomination, end quote. Quote, no, answered Nixon. I do not intend to withdraw the nomination. I studied his record as it was submitted to me by the Attorney General before I sent the nomination to the Senate. I still have confidence in Judge Hainsworth's qualifications, in his integrity, end quote. The President also was asked for, quote, some insight into your thinking, sir, as to the difference between the situation that required Supreme Court Justice Fortas to resign and the recent disclosures concerning Judge Hainsworth, end quote. Nixon said he would, quote, simply stand on my statement that I was aware generally of Judge Hainsworth's background of his financial status before he was appointed, end quote. If Nixon was unwilling to recognize any parallels between the Hainsworth and Fortas nominations, the similarities impressed others, Republicans as well as Democrats. Three Republican senators early in October publicly announced they could not support their president's nominee, and the opposition of these three placed a particular strain on Nixon's continuing statements about the quote-unquote integrity of his nominee. The first to openly break with Nixon was Senator Edward W. Brooke of Massachusetts, the only black member of the Senate. The second and third were Senators Griffin of Michigan and Margaret Chase Smith of Maine. Griffin, after he successfully led the opposition to President Johnson's nomination of Abe Fortas to be Chief Justice, had become assistant leader of Senate Republicans. He said that, quote, legitimate and substantial doubt, end quote, had been raised concerning Hainsworth's sensitivity to judicial ethics. Mrs. Smith, a fearsomely independent Yankee, declared she could not, after having imposed the Fortas nomination, now apply a double standard to support Hainsworth. On Monday, October 6th, Chief Justice Berger opened a new term of the Supreme Court. And not only was the ninth seat vacant still, but the Judiciary Committee had not even voted on the Hainsworth nomination. It voted three days later, and the vote was 10-7 to 7, to recommend that the Senate confirm Hainsworth. The ten were mostly Southern Democrats and five Republicans. The Senate were mostly Northern Democrats and two Republicans, Senators Griffin of Michigan and Charles McSee Mathias Jr. of Maryland. The majority found Hainsworth, quote, extraordinarily well qualified, end quote, to sit on the Supreme Court and asserted in answer to the attacks on him that, quote, nothing in his judicial conduct would in any way justify recommending against his confirmation, end quote. The five Democrats who voted against Hainsworth recommended that Nixon withdraw the nomination. Nixon stubbornly repeated almost daily that he had no intention of withdrawing the nomination, but by now the President and Attorney General Mitchell fully realized that the marvelous ease of their success in June with the Berger nomination would not be repeated. Their triumphal success had been won only four months before, but now even the Fortis mess was effectively being turned against them. Democratic liberals, blacks, and organized labor had ganged up and attacked Hainsworth so viciously that Nixon could not withdraw the nomination without conceding defeat to his enemies. Far more than Clement F. Hainsworth Jr. was involved now. Politics and campaign promises were involved. Promises Nixon had made to the American voters who were not black or young. Promises to reform the Supreme Court. Promises to the South that Richard Nixon, for good reasons, past, present, and future, must redeem. 
so Nixon and Mitchell belatedly abandoned their casual approach to the Fortis vacancy and went to work. The president, on October 20th, called the press into his office for another informal chat, attempting to repeat the success he had had with reporters immediately after he had made the Berger nomination. Quote, I want to give you my own thinking with regard to the nomination of Judge Hainsworth, end quote, Nixon told the press. The president said he still believed that Hainsworth, among all the appellate court justices in America, was, quote, the best qualified to serve on the Supreme Court at this time, end quote. Hainsworth had become the target of, quote, a vicious character assassination, end quote, Nixon said, and he reviewed the Carolina Venomatic case, the Brunswick case, and the other charges, and opined that Hainsworth had not acted improperly in any of them. Some of the opposition, Nixon agreed, was directed at Hainsworth's philosophic conservatism. But the president argued that philosophy is not, quote, a proper ground, end quote, for the Senate of the United States to consider. Quote, I think he will be a great credit to the Supreme Court, and I am going to stand by him, end quote, Nixon declared with evident determination. Clark R. Mollenhoff, once a reporter himself, who recently had joined Nixon's staff as White House Deputy Counsel, also went to work on the press. Mollenhoff's past credentials as an excellent investigative reporter stood him in supposedly good stead as he looked into the charges that had been made against Hainsworth. And, now, from his White House office, he dispatched statements to the press, asserting, for instance, that there was no justifiable basis for comparing the activities of Hainsworth with those of former Associate Justice Fortas. The organized bar began to line up behind Hainsworth, rather as it had supported the Berger nomination. Sixteen former presidents of the American Bar Association, on October 24th, sent a telegram to Senator Eastland urging Senate confirmation of Hainsworth, but the list did not include the current or immediate past presidents of the ABA. Republican Party machinery in states all across the country was cranked up on behalf of Hainsworth. Pressures were applied mainly to the Republican senators, who had not committed themselves one way or the other on the nomination. Though the pressures came from their home states, the senators attributed them to the White House. Senator Len B. Jordan of Idaho later said that the pressure from Republican groups in Idaho had begun after he confidently had told Attorney General Mitchell he would vote against Hainsworth. In aid to Senator William B. Saxby of Ohio, said the senator received, quote, tens of thousands of threatening letters from people in the state who have contributed to his campaign. It's as strong as anything we've seen, end quote. Almost the entire Illinois Republican delegation to the House of Representatives paid a visit to Senator Charles H. Percy of Illinois to ask him to vote for Hainsworth. Civil rights and labor groups at the time, of course, were lobbying against the Hainsworth nomination. But the most crucial undecided votes belonged to Republican senators, and, if the outcome was to be decided by last-minute pressures, the White House obviously could twist Republican arms with a great deal more muscle than was available to black and labor lobbyists. Senate debate on the Hainsworth nomination began November 13th, and in the week it lasted, the cliquishness that normally dictates against harsh verbal assault by one senator on other members of the club was severely strained. Senator Eastland of Mississippi declared on the floor of the Senate that Hainsworth had, quote, withstood a trial by ordeal within the committee and a trial by rumor without the committee with no trace of bitterness or anger or outrage which others felt for him, end quote. Quote, the nomination in question is going to demonstrate how much power labor has in America, 
end quote. Republican Senator Robert Dole of Kansas added in defense of Hainsworth. Conservative Robert C. Byrd, Democrat of West Virginia, asserted during the floor debate that, quote, much of the opposition to this nomination comes from groups and blocks which are opposed to the philosophy of Judge Hainsworth, so that the matter of conflict of interest may be considered a smokescreen, end quote. Liberals opposing Hainsworth in the debate were equally outspoken. Democratic Senator Lee Metcalf of Montana sharply attacked Nixon, saying, quote, In the light of Judge Hainsworth's record, it is plain that the highest qualification for a seat on the Supreme Court is complete ideological identification with the reactionary tenets of the administration's Southern strategy, end quote. Jacob K. Javits, a liberal Republican from New York, told the Senate that Hainsworth was, quote, so consistently insensitive to the centuries-old injustice which we as a nation have caused our black citizens to bear that I could not support the introduction of Judge Hainsworth's philosophy into the nation's highest court, end quote. Quote, we cannot afford to fill the ninth seat with a man who enjoys anything less than the full faith and respect of those whom he serves, said the Senate's only black member, Edward Brooke, we cannot afford to weaken the reverence on which the court's power is ultimately founded, end quote. The intense pressure that the Nixon administration was putting on senators also became an issue in the debate, and the pressure, to some extent, backfired. Senator Jordan, for instance, told his colleagues, quote, During my more than seven years in the Senate, few issues have generated more pressure on my office than the confirmation of Judge Hainsworth. Support of the president is urged as if it were a personal matter rather than an issue of grave constitutional importance. End quote. The roll call vote was scheduled to take place on Friday afternoon, November 21st. That morning, a few senators, including Republicans John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky and Mark Hatfield of Oregon, still had not announced their positions. The result was sufficiently uncertain that at one o'clock in the afternoon, as the roll call began, Vice President Spiro T. Agnew was presiding over the Senate, a rarity for him, in the event his vote would be needed to break a tie. It was not. The roll call took ten minutes, and when the tally was handed to Agnew for him to announce, he glanced at the sheet of paper and then grimly told the crowded galleries, quote, there will be no outburst, end quote. Hainsworth was defeated. The tally showed that 45 senators voted to confirm Hainsworth, and 55 voted against confirmation. The margin of defeat for Nixon and Mitchell was substantially larger than the White House had expected or the Senate liberals had hoped. It was unexpectedly large because the nomination was an affront to the relatively few senators whose votes were neither foredained by politics or geography, nor moved by pressure. The tally showed that, of the 45 senators who voted for Hainsworth, 26 were Republicans and 19 were Democrats, almost all of them Southern Democrats. Of the 55 senators who voted against Hainsworth, 17 were Republicans and 38 were Democrats. Defections from the Republican Party, largely among senators who had not committed themselves until late, were more than enough to defeat the nomination. Among the 17 Republicans who defected to vote against President Nixon and his nominee were not only Robert Griffin, Len Jordan, and Margaret Chase Smith, but also Hugh Scott of Pennsylvania, the Republican leader in the Senate, Mark Hatfield of Oregon, John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky, Charles Percy of Illinois, John J. Williams of Delaware, and Jack Miller of Iowa. 
The defeat of Clement F. Hainsworth Jr. was the first major congressional setback suffered by President Richard M. Nixon. It was a stronger rebuke than the Senate had handed Lyndon Johnson, for Johnson's nomination of Abe Fortas to be Chief Justice was killed by filibuster, without reaching a vote, while Nixon's nomination of Hainsworth was finally and decisively defeated by a vote of the United States Senate. It was, moreover, the first Supreme Court nomination to be defeated on a roll-call vote since 1930, when President Hoover's nomination of John Parker was defeated. Later in the afternoon of November 21st, President Nixon issued from the White House a statement in which he insisted that Hainsworth, quote, would have brought a great credit to the Supreme Court, end quote. It was an angry statement in which Nixon implicitly acknowledged that Hainsworth had been defeated because he represented the White South's continuing opposition to the Warren Court's declarations of equal justice under the law for blacks. It was a defiant statement. Quote, I deeply regret this action. I believe a majority of the people in the nation regret it, Nixon's statement declared. Especially, I deplore the nature of the attacks that have been made against this distinguished man. His integrity is unimpeachable. The Supreme Court needs men of his legal philosophy to restore the proper balance to that great institution. End quote. Nixon promised that, when the Congress returned for its second session in January, he would send to the Senate a new nomination to fill the Fortis vacancy. And Nixon vowed, quote, The criteria I shall apply to this selection, as was the case in my nomination of Judge Hainsworth, will be consistent with my commitments to the American people before my election as president a year ago. End quote. Nixon's recollection of political campaign promises notwithstanding, his attempt to place Judge Hainsworth on the Supreme Court was a rather dull episode in the struggle for control of the court. It lacked the drama of Fortas's secret excursions to the White House to advise the president on mighty issues of war and peace, and it had no supporting characters as interesting as Lewis Wolfson. The reconstruction of the judge's stock and bond holdings became tedious even if members of the Senate, who needed an excuse to vote against him, found it in his strongbox. He was too straight a pillar of the Old South to be the subject of a really good fight. But when Nixon, as promised, tried to fill the Fortis vacancy, he provided the Senate with a more lively, strict constructionist. End of chapter 10 Throughout the Hainsworth controversy, they always seemed worlds apart. Official Washington, where the debate was hot and furious, and Greenville, South Carolina, where the nominee rode out the storm in his quiet southern environment. Today, the two worlds met briefly to write the final chapter in the Hainsworth case. Ladies and gentlemen, immediately after the Senate action in a very close vote in not confirming Judge Hainsworth for the Supreme Court, I called the judge on the phone. I asked him if he would continue to serve as chief judge of the Fourth Circuit. Uh, I must say that after the brutally vicious and, in my opinion, unfair attack on his integrity, I would well understand why the judge would retire to private life. A weak man would. A fearful man would. The judge is not a weak man. He's a strong man. Uh, I told him of my philosophy, which is that a great philosophy is one that is never without defeat, but it is always without fear. The judge has suffered a defeat but he's without fear. And a man of his courage, his integrity, is needed on one of the highest courts of this land. And I am very delighted to announce today that the judge will continue to serve as chief judge of the Fourth Circuit. 
President, ladies and gentlemen of the press, uh, no one likes to lose. Uh, I don't. But uh, I never have felt that a setback should be accepted as a final defeat of a man or as a judge. I'm very grateful to you for your trust. Uh, your support has been constant, unflagging. Uh, it uh, has been uh, a, uh, a great source of pride to me, and I'll take that pride with me as long as I live. Sir. The president will have another nominee for the scrutiny of official Washington in January. The judge returned to Greenville to the life and work he has known. Tom Jarrell, ABC News, at the White House. Chapter 11 of God Save This Honorable Court, The Supreme Court Crisis. I'm Mike Overby, and this is an Amicus Lectio special for Ipse Dixit Selects Phonographica. If you'd like your scholarship read in this podcast, you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, at Amicus Lectio, or at Lethargilistic. God Save This Honorable Court, The Supreme Court Crisis, by Lewis M. Colmeyer Jr. Chapter 11. Nixon Fumbles Again. Of the opposition which defeated the nomination of Clement F. Hainsworth, Jr., Attorney General John Mitchell said, quote, If we'd put up one of the twelve apostles, it would have been the same. End quote. The quality of the advocacy relative to the nomination to fill the Supreme Court seat of Abe Fortas, vacant now for nearly eight months, declined from that level. The Attorney General, manager of Nixon's election and Supreme Court campaigns, tended to see all things and all people in their political light, which is to say, in terms of the popular and electoral votes Richard Nixon would and would not receive in 1972. Attorneys General, according to the folklore of Washington, are not to be political persons because they are the nation's chief law enforcement officers, and the laws must be enforced among Democrats and Republicans, rich and poor, black and white alike. Attorney General Mitchell knew his folklore, as had Robert Kennedy. After the 1968 campaign, Mitchell, in fact, did not concern himself very much with the bothersome business of running the Republican National Committee, hearing the complaints or praises of state and local party officials, or settling intra-party squabbles. Mitchell's gaze was higher and wider, north, south, east, and west. There was no southern strategy if that term, popularized by their enemies, meant the president and his attorney general were interested only in the popular and electoral votes of the South. Mitchell was interested in votes for Nixon anywhere he could find them. But if by that term it was meant that Mitchell must pay particular attention to the winning of conservative, white, Southern votes, then of course it had validity. Mitchell, looking towards 1972, had to assume that in the South, there again would be that narrow margin of votes which could mean for Richard Nixon victory or defeat. Nixon and Mitchell, following the rejection of Hainsworth, went in search of a new nominee who would be equally, quote, consistent with my commitments to the American people before my election as president a year ago, end quote. The new nominee would also be a sitting federal judge with a track record that demonstrated his conservative or strict constructionist credentials. He would be a Southerner to give the Supreme Court the balance it needed. Being both a Southerner and a strict constructionist, his track record automatically would include decisions that again would prompt black people to oppose this nominee. But Mitchell could count very few black votes anyway. On the other hand, organized labor opposition this time should be avoided, insofar as that might be possible. Above all, the nominee must own no stocks or bonds or convertible debentures. It's difficult to find a poor judge, but he must not be rich as Hainsworth. 
Nixon and Mitchell had no difficulty finding their nominee, and this time they wasted no time in dispatching that nominee to the Senate. The president announced the nomination on January 19, 1970, which was, as Nixon had promised, shortly after the new session of Congress began. Senator Eastland of Mississippi and other conservative elders of the Senate Judiciary Committee this time also made haste. The confirmation hearings opened only a week after the nomination was made, despite liberals' complaints that they had not had time to study thoroughly the nominee's track record or much else about him. The nominee was G. Harold Carswell. The G was for George, but his friends at home in Tallahassee always called him Harold. George Harold Carswell was a judge on the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is based in New Orleans and is the federal appellate circuit for the states of Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. The Fifth Circuit had been involved as fully, certainly in civil rights litigation, as the Fourth Circuit on which Judge Hainsworth sat, but Judge Carswell did not have as much of a track record as an appellate judge because President Nixon had named him to the Fifth Circuit but eight months earlier. Indeed, as coincidence would have it, Carswell was nominated to the Fifth Circuit in May 1969, the same month Abe Fortas left the Supreme Court. For 11 years before that, Carswell had been a U.S. District Court judge for the Northern District of Florida, and for five years prior to his appointment to the bench, he had been a U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Florida. President Eisenhower in 1953 named him U.S. attorney, and in 1958 had elevated him to the Federal District Court, where he sat until the next Republican president, Richard Nixon, came along. There were then impressive similarities between President Nixon's first and second choices to fill the ninth seat on the Supreme Court. Carswell and Hainsworth, in addition to being sitting federal appellate judges, were both from the Old South, Northern Florida qualifying, sociologically and politically, for inclusion in the Old South, even though the lower part of the state has been partially severed by the influx of retired persons and vacationers from the North. Carswell and Hainsworth also shared, along with Strom Thurmond, the distinction of having been Southern Democrats who had switched to the Republican Party back when Eisenhower was president and Nixon was vice president. And in the 1968 presidential election, Richard Nixon had carried Florida as well as South Carolina, outdistancing George Wallace in both of those Southern areas. There were also differences. Judge Hainsworth, at 57, was the archetype of the landed aristocracy of the South, which was moving ahead if at a conservative pace. He was not mean, and he was not wholly lacking in compassion. After the northern liberals in Washington abused and defeated him, he did not grow vengeful, but instead went home to Greenville and commented that, while his defeat was, quote, unhappy for me, for our country's sake, I hope the debate will prove to have been a cleansing agent which will smooth the way for the president's next and later nominees, end quote. Judge Carswell was only seven years younger than Hainsworth, but his dark hair and boyish face reinforced the impression of an ambitious young man, a more direct and sharp and impatient person than Hainsworth. There were additional differences which ultimately proved, among other things, that there are degrees of strict constructionism. But the most important difference between Carswell and Hainsworth, for the purposes of the moment, was that Carswell was not a rich man. He also claimed no distinguished family lineage of five generations, and he had not been to Harvard. Carswell was born in the town of Irwinton, Georgia, on December 22, 1919. He went to Duke University, joined the Navy in World War II, and came out a lieutenant, and in 1946 enrolled in the Mercer University Law School at Macon, Georgia. While a student at Mercer, 
he obtained a franchise and borrowed $7,000 to start a telephone business in nearby Wilkinson County, Georgia. He received his law degree in 1948 and ran as a Democrat for the Georgia legislature and lost. Then he sold the telephone business and moved to Tallahassee, the capital of Florida. There he practiced law for about five years, first as an associate of the firm of which Leroy Collins, later governor of Florida, was a partner, and later he started his own firm. Carswell married a pretty Tallahassee girl of good family, and he maintained a lively interest in politics, supporting Senator Richard Russell of Georgia for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1952. When the Democrats instead nominated Adlai Stevenson, Carswell switched to support the Republican ticket of Eisenhower and Nixon. Then, at the age of 33, and after only five years in Florida, Carswell in 1953 received from President Eisenhower appointment as U.S. Attorney, and five years later he became the youngest federal district court judge in the nation. In May 1969, President Nixon nominated, and the Senate confirmed him, to be a member of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. When the Senate Judiciary Committee on January 27, 1970, opened hearings on the nomination of Carswell to the Supreme Court, the point was quickly made that he was not a rich man. Roman L. Hruska, the senator with the mellifluous voice from Nebraska, who appropriately had succeeded the late Everett McKinley Dirksen as the senior Republican on the committee, and who would be Carswell's chief proponent in the Senate, made the point soon and often. Quote, While he is not an impoverished man, he is far from well off, Hruska said. He is far from affluent. End quote. Affluence, like strict constructionism, is variously defined. Under questioning by Hruska and other friendly Republican committee members, Carswell testified, quote, I have no stocks, I have no bonds whatsoever, end quote. He had, quote, never received any fee for any outside activities of any nature, end quote. He and his wife shared an automobile, quote-unquote, a Pontiac, he volunteered. His house was mortgaged for $50,347.20, and his monthly payments were $469.45. The house, admittedly, was handsomely spacious, located on a lake north of Tallahassee, and worth maybe $90,000 on the current market. Carswell also owned, by inheritance with other members of his family, a 3 interest in 1,290 unimproved acres of undeveloped land in Wilkinson County, Georgia. His wife owned by inheritance 78 shares of common stock of a crate and box manufacturing concern worth perhaps $50,000. And that, Carswell told the Judiciary Committee, in a strong and almost proud tone, was all there was of his personal wealth. The Liberal Democrats on the committee made an effort to dig into Judge Carswell's alleged poverty of stocks and bonds. Senator Bayh again led the attack, but this time Kennedy, recovered a bit from the Chappaquiddick incident, took a more active role in the interrogation of the president's nominee. Bayh and Kennedy tried the line of questioning that had proved fruitful in the Hainsworth hearings by attempting to lay hands on cases which Carswell had decided, but which perhaps he should have allowed some other judge to decide. Kennedy, for instance, tried to find out whether Carswell had ruled on cases involving parties who had been his clients during the past five years he had been in private law practice. Bai wanted to know whether Carswell had decided any cases involving customers of the Creighton Box Company in which Mrs. Carswell owned stock. But the liberals dug only dry holes, and Senator Hart of Michigan ended the search on a note of good humor. Quote, to ease the tension, if possible, Hart said to Carswell, we are not to understand, by reason of the fact that you own no stocks or bonds, that you are opposed to the basic concept of a free, competitive society. End quote. 
Everyone laughed. Carswell answered, quote, certainly not, end quote. And the liberal and conservative senators on the committee concluded in silent unanimity that Nixon and Mitchell thus far had succeeded. This nomination would not fail, as the Fortas and Hainsworth nominations had, because of reasons allegedly related to the personal riches of the nominee. Well, then, what of Judge Carswell's track record on labor cases? In fact, he did not have much of a record because relatively few labor cases had come before him as an appellate or district court judge. There was, however, one case that was brought to the senator's attention by some woman liberationists, and that interested the senators mildly. It was a case titled Ida Phillips v. Martin Marietta, which had been decided in 1969 by the Fifth Circuit. Martin Marietta Corporation had refused as a matter of policy to hire Ida Phillips and other women with children of preschool age, and the question was whether the policy constituted illegal sex discrimination under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The liberal senators were quite gentle in their questioning of Carswell concerning the case, but Representative Patsy T. Mink of Hawaii testified before the committee that she most adamantly opposed the Carswell nomination because of this part of the case. Worse, Betty Friedan, author of a book titled The Feminine Mystique, and president of the National Organization for Women, now, appeared in opposition to testify that Carswell was, quote, a sexist judge, end quote. But committee member Eastland of Mississippi said to each woman, as she seemed about to conclude and finally did conclude her testimony, quote, thank you, ma'am, end quote, and Eastland said no more. Carswell's brush with women's liberation was not serious, and in fact was rather unfair. A three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit, which had not included Judge Carswell, had found that Martin Marietta's policy did not violate the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Mrs. Ida Phillips' lawyers then asked that the panel's decision be set for a hearing before all of the dozen Fifth Circuit judges, and Carswell's only participation in the case was to vote with the majority to deny an en banc hearing. The case then followed the normal course of appeal to the Supreme Court. With Carswell's hearings barely three days old, the Judiciary Committee had rather well exhausted the more or less tangential issues of the kind which had proved useful to the Liberals as handles for getting hold of Judge Hainsworth, and to the Conservatives for getting hold of Judge Fortas. So the Senators had nothing more to talk about except the central issue, which was the merit of the nomination of Judge Carswell to fulfill President Nixon's stated purpose of giving new balance to the Supreme Court by placing on it a Southern strict constructionist. But the members of the United States Senate, liberal and conservative, are generally not adept at deciding issues strictly on their merits when the stakes are very high and the pressures very great. Many senators are lawyers who are fully capable of exploring issues on their merits, but senators also are politicians who are subjected to many political pressures and who, in the end, must answer to their constituents, their party, and, as the case may be, their president. If an issue can be disposed of solely or largely on some tangential basis, answering is relatively easy. The tangents almost always involve allegedly questionable personal ethics, so answering is easy because ethical questions lend themselves nicely to rhetoric, and anyway, no senator is expected to be in favor of questionable ethics. If great issues cannot be so disposed of, Answering is more difficult because the merits are complex, and no amount of explaining will in any event satisfy all of those who pressured a senator to do the opposite of what he did. All of which President Nixon and Attorney General Mitchell knew when they nominated Judge Carswell. It was an election year, and they chose a nominee who was not vulnerable to the kinds of ethical allegations that had been raised against Hainsworth and Fortas. 
they chose wisely. The Liberal Democrats in the Senate did not succeed in grabbing hold of Carswell, but Nixon and Mitchell did not choose wisely enough. Pressures, more professional than political, that were initiated outside the Senate forced the debate to be the central issue, and in the end the Carswell nomination was decided more on the basis of merit than any of the other engagements in the struggle for control of the Supreme Court that began that day Adlai Stevenson fell dead in London. And the inevitable basis of the decision was the constitutional rights of black Americans, past and future. During the brief period between the day Nixon nominated Carswell and the day the Senate hearings began, an enterprising journalist recovered a speech Carswell had made 22 years earlier. The speech was delivered before an American Legion audience in Georgia, and the time was the period immediately following World War II. Carswell was running for a seat in the Georgia legislature. In that context, Carswell, a 29-year-old war veteran, delivered a ringing Remember Pearl Harbor speech, in which he warned of communists and of northern liberals who, he declared, were invading states' rights by advocating federal action to force the South to grant equal employment and other rights to Negroes. He then said, quote, I am a Southerner by ancestry, birth, training, inclination, belief, and practice. I believe that segregation of the races is proper and the only practical and correct way of life in our states. I have always so believed, and I shall always so act. I shall be the last to submit to any attempt on the part of anyone to break down and to weaken this firmly established policy of our people. I yield to no man as a fellow candidate or as a fellow citizen in the firm, vigorous belief in the principles of white supremacy, and I shall always be so governed. End quote. In the year 1970, the overt advocacy of white supremacy by any holder of public office was no longer acceptable in Washington, D.C. No member of Congress, even from the Deep South, would stand on the floor of the Senate or House and publicly call a black man a nigger, or embrace segregation as a way of life, or advocate white supremacy. The most conservative members of Congress would advocate, as the president had, strict constructionism and law and order. But the leadership of the Warren Court, more than anything else, had carried the federal government forward by 1970 to a time when, for political if not moral reasons, no holder of public office, elective or appointive, could openly advocate in Washington a policy of apartheid for America. Even before the Senate confirmation hearing opened, Carswell, in the strongest terms, repudiated his 1948 speech. In a CBS television interview, he said, quote, I denounce and reject the words themselves and the ideas they represent. They're obnoxious and abhorrent to my personal philosophy. End quote. On the first day of the hearing, as he sat before the Judiciary Committee, toying with a yellow lead pencil and occasionally puffing on a filtered cigarette, he repeatedly and strongly reiterated, quote, With all the conviction that I have that these views are obnoxious and abhorrent to me. End quote. If President Nixon and Attorney General Mitchell also recognized the rediscovery of the 1948 speech as a potential problem, they initially tried to meet it by insisting that the speech was of no relevance now. They said they had not known of the speech because the Federal Bureau of Investigation had failed to discover it when the Bureau checked into Carswell's background. The announcement sacrificed a bit of the FBI's vaunted reputation, but the choice was between allowing the FBI to look sloppy and making Nixon and Mitchell appear insensitive to Carswell's racist words. But the main point, Nixon said at a press conference three days after the Senate hearings had begun, was that Carswell's record of public service since 1953 was, quote, without a taint of racism, end quote. 
As if to say that racism and strict constructionism are opposites, the president added that Carswell's record was one of, quote, strict constructionism as far as the interpretation of the Constitution, end quote, was concerned. After some weeks passed, and it became quite apparent that the Senate did not consider the 1948 speech to be irrelevant, Mitchell found it necessary to make a further statement concerning the Nixon administration's knowledge of the speech. The Justice Department issued a statement to the press which said, quote, Attorney General John N. Mitchell today described as categorically false a report that an FBI investigation of Judge G. Harold Carswell, prior to his nomination to be Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, uncovered his 1948 speech. End quote. Footnote. The statement was issued on March 27, 1970. End footnote. So the question, as it was posed for deliberation by the Senate Judiciary Committee, was one of Carswell's veracity. And thus, the contradiction, acknowledged in the political world, between politics and principle, the difference between what is said and what is believed, itself became an issue in the struggle for control of the court. Carswell told the committee that he supposed he believed his words when he said them 22 years ago, but whatever he believed then, it was now 1970, and, quote, I do not harbor any racial supremacy notions, end quote. His testimony seemed frank and unequivocal, and the Senate seemed to be sympathetic to his plight. The speech was a long time ago, when a young Carswell was trying to talk American legionnaires into voting him into the Georgia legislature. A long line of witnesses appeared to testify to the worth of Carswell's character and ability. The president of the Florida Bar Association, Mark Husley Jr., told the committee that Judge Carswell was a fine judge and no racist. Leroy Collins, now a former governor of the state, said he knew Carswell to be, quote, a man of untarnished integrity, end quote. Both of Florida's senators, Democrat Spessard L. Holland and Republican Edward J. Gurney, testified in strong support of the nomination. The American Bar Association's Standing Committee on the Federal Judiciary said it had investigated Carswell and found him, quote, qualified for this appointment, end quote. One of the many letters which came to the Judiciary Committee in support of Carswell was postmarked Austin, Texas, and it bore the endorsement of Homer Thornberry, a fellow judge on the Fifth Circuit who hoped the members of the Senate could not think him, quote-unquote, presumptuous for writing. But even if Carswell's veracity was accepted, a subtle note of ambiguity had crept into the confirmation hearing. If Carswell was no racist, it nonetheless remained that Nixon had, by his own words, selected this particular Southern strict constructionist for the purpose of balancing the Supreme Court against the libertarian philosophy of the Warren Court. If G. Harold Carswell was no racist, what, then, was his position concerning civil rights? If the answer was not to be found in what Carswell had said, the liberals could examine what he had done. During most of the first three days of the Senate hearing, as the liberals were conducting their fruitless search for ethical lapses and the conservatives were successfully establishing that Carswell was not a rich man, the 1948 speech and what Carswell had done since then came up intermittently a number of times. In most of the years since 1948, Carswell had been in federal service as the U.S. attorney and a judge, but he had participated in few cases during his recent short stay on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. During the 11 years he sat as a federal district court judge in northern Florida, he had decided many civil rights cases involving racial segregation in schools, a barbershop, airport facilities, theaters, and so forth. But it was difficult or impossible to draw firm conclusions about Carswell's philosophy from readings of his decisions. Judge Carswell's opinions typically were short, 
direct, and lacking of the judicial reasoning and intellectual probing to be found in various other federal court opinions of the 1950s and 1960s, which dealt with the many complex questions of fact and law that were left undecided by the Warren Court's initial civil rights decisions. The liberal members of the Judiciary Committee made only feeble efforts to investigate Carswell's philosophy through his decisions. The liberals did make a somewhat more determined attempt to question the nominee about his membership in a Tallahassee golf club, suggesting that this bore on his racial views. But Carswell answered them it was only a, quote, little wooden country club, end quote. The conservative committee members, on the other hand, found merit in Carswell's record as a judge. They also did not dwell on his particular decisions, but apparently relied on the president's judgment. Senator Thurmond told the committee that Carswell, quote, has a reputation of having a conservative philosophy, end quote, adding that Nixon chose Carswell for his conservatism because, quote, you cannot bring a balance to the court unless that were done, end quote. Senator Thurmond told the committee that Carswell, quote, has a reputation of having a conservative philosophy, end quote, adding that Nixon chose Carswell for his conservatism because, quote, you cannot bring a balance to the court unless that were done, end quote. Thurmond also said that Carswell was to be congratulated for his ability to, quote, bring together the facts and applicable law and succinctly state the conclusion with brevity and exactness. This style of writing judicial opinions is somewhat unique today, for the opinions of many of our judges are too long and superfluous, end quote, Thurmond said. Another Republican member of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Griffin of Michigan, on the same subject, said to Carswell, quote, Frankly, I must register my disagreement with those who criticize your opinions by comparing them to a plumber's manual, end quote. Inasmuch as the liberals at that point had not publicly compared Carswell's opinions with a plumber's manual, Griffin's remark seemed to raise a question as to whose side he was on this time. Late on the third day of the hearings, the Judiciary Committee began to hear witnesses who had taken time to study Judge Carswell's opinions, and who came to testify not on behalf of any bar association or other organization, but as individuals. One was William Van Allestein, a professor of Duke University Law School, the school from which Richard Nixon had received a law degree in 1937, as it happened. Van Allestein reviewed for the committee some of the particular cases Judge Carswell had decided. One was brought by several Tallahassee Negroes to enjoin the local sheriff from allegedly harassing blacks who were engaged in an effort to desegregate theaters. Carswell refused to hold a hearing and granted summary judgment for the sheriff. Under federal civil rights acts and Supreme Court decisions, Van Allestein said, quote, a hearing should have been held, end quote, adding that Carswell was reversed by a court of appeals. A second case was brought by four Negro children to desegregate the facilities of a juvenile institution in which they had been sent after being convicted of participating in a sit-in. Judge Carswell dismissed the suit, and he again was reversed, the professor noted. In a third case, Negro plaintiffs sued to enjoin alleged police harassment, and Judge Carswell granted summary judgment against the Negroes without holding a hearing where the Negroes would have had an opportunity to establish that the police were in fact acting maliciously. He again was reversed by an appeals court, which ordered Judge Carswell to hear the Negroes. In a fourth case, suit was brought on behalf of black children to enjoin the assignment of school teachers on the basis of race. Van Allestein said Carswell's opinion, quote, manifested a severely restricted interpretation, end quote, of the Supreme Court's 1954 school desegregation decision, 
Carswell held that the Supreme Court decision applied only to desegregation of children and that there was no basis for concluding that the Constitution similarly barred segregation of school facilities. Professor Van Allestein told the committee that, in his opinion, quote, it would be uniquely inappropriate, end quote, for the Senate to confirm Carswell's nomination to the Supreme Court unless the 1948 speech, quote, can be significantly discounted by clear and reassuring events since that time. But an examination of his decisions and opinions as a district judge since that time provides no feeling for a basis of reassurance whatever, end quote. Van Allestein found it disturbing that in Carswell's opinions generally, quote, there is simply a lack of reasoning, care, or judicial sensitivity. There is, in candor, nothing in the quality of the nominee's work to warrant any expectation, whatever, that he could serve with distinction on the Supreme Court of the United States. If the Warren Court will be historically a monument, it will be because it gave that initial push to momentum of concerns in the United States dating from 1954. There has been, in my view, a unique and admirable unanimity on this crucial question since that time. End quote. Quote, I can think of no more regrettable insult to the Warren Court than confirmation of Carswell, unless the Senate finds in Carswell's record since 1948 reassurance that his speech then was merely a forgettable incident. End quote. Van Allestein concluded, the testimony was particularly damaging to Nixon and Carswell because Van Allestein had been an assistant attorney general in charge of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division during the Eisenhower administration. Much more recently, he had appeared before the same Judiciary Committee to support the president's nomination of Judge Hainsworth. He had testified for Hainsworth because he had been familiar with that judge's decisions and felt that, although he did not always agree with Hainsworth's results, his opinions were arrived at with, quote, reassuring care and reason, end quote. Having taken a position on Hainsworth, he now was here to express his, quote, sharply different impressions, end quote, of Carswell. Professor Van Allestein's courage opened a floodgate through which poured a stream and then a river of opposition. It came from the academic community and the legal profession, and its anger was directed more at Nixon and Mitchell as lawyers than as politicians. Some Republican senators were swept up in it because, politics notwithstanding, as lawyers they seemed unable to take the Carswell nomination seriously anymore. Senator Griffin's remark about the plumber's manual was but the beginning. Gary Orfield, an assistant professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University, in testifying against Carswell, applied the term, quote-unquote, mediocre to the nominee, and it took hold, even in the mind of Senator Roman Hruska, who had defended Carswell so well against the charges of affluence. When Hruska, as a leader of the pro-Carswell forces in the Senate, was interviewed on television, he defended Carswell by saying, quote, Even if he were mediocre, there are a lot of mediocre judges and people and lawyers. They are entitled to a little representation, aren't they? We can't have all Brandeises and Frankfurters and Cardozos, end quote. Professor Orfield had testified also against the Hainsworth nomination. And as the Carswell's hearing moved through its fourth and fifth days, others who were against Hainsworth also appeared in opposition to Carswell. Clarence Mitchell, testifying for the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, called Carswell, quote, an advocate of racial segregation, and said, quote, We breathe a sigh of relief when Negroes go into the courts instead of into the streets, but we then confront them with judges who have decided to deny them relief even before they enter the courthouse door, end quote. Thomas E. Harris, a lawyer who appeared for the AFL-CIO, 
testified against Carswell not because of his decisions in labor cases, but because of the racial issue. The stream of opposition to Carswell was turned into a river by lawyers and law professors who had remained silent on the Hainsworth nomination. John Lowenthal, a law professor at Rutgers University, who had litigated civil rights cases before Judge Carswell in 1964, testified that the judge was, quote, extremely hostile, end quote. Ernest H. Rosenberger, who, as a law student in 1964, had assisted in defending civil rights workers before Carswell, testified, quote, his reputation was bad, his reputation was one of obstruction in civil rights litigation, end quote. Leroy D. Clark, associate professor at New York University Law School, testified on behalf of the National Conference of Black Lawyers, quote, It was not unusual for Carswell to shout at a black lawyer who appeared before him while using a civil tone to opposing counsel, end quote, adding, quote, Black people do not want their destinies in the hands of G. Harold Carswell, end quote. As the hearing neared its end, Louis H. Pollack, dean of the Yale Law School, took the witness chair. Speaking out of, quote, professional concern and citizen concern, end quote, Pollack said, quote, When the president nominates and the Senate confirms an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, it does an awesome thing. The president and the Senate, in combination, are entrusting a fair measure of the nation's future to the man or woman, one can hope that in due course it may be a woman, who sits on that court and participates in the shaping of our fundamental institutions. I in no way object to a president giving weight in the selection of a judicial nominee to geographic and indeed political considerations. The appointment of a Republican and a Southerner adds philosophic and geographic diversity which strengthens the court when rightly applied. That is to say, when applied in appointing a man who at minimum presents the highest professional qualifications. But, when one adds to the criterion of republicanism and southernism the criterion of lukewarmness on the greatest issue confronting our nation, then it seems to me we have to take a second look. End quote. Dean Pollock took a second look, and he found Carswell a judge given to quote, a repeated use of dispositive techniques which avoided hearings. End quote. He found him a judge who quote, was failing to follow clear mandates of the court above him in failing to explore applications plainly alleging serious constitutional deprivations. End quote. He saw in Carswell no quote, signs of real professional distinction which would arise one iota out of the ordinary. End quote. And he found that quote, the nominee has not demonstrated the professional skills and the larger constitutional wisdom which fits a lawyer for elevation to our highest court. End quote. Quote, I am impelled to conclude, Dean Pollock said, that the nominee presents more slender credentials than any nominee for the Supreme Court put forth in this century. And this century began, I remind this committee, with the elevation to the Supreme Court of Oliver Wendell Holmes. End quote. In conclusion, and even without questioning Carswell's good faith in repudiating his 1948 speech, Pollock said, quote, What symbolism would attach to Senate confirmation as Associate Justice of a lawyer whose latter career offers so meager a basis for predicting that he possesses judicial capacity and constitutional insight of the first rank? I say advisedly, if that speech had been an attack on Jews or on Catholics, his name would have been withdrawn within five minutes after the speech came to light lukewarmness to the rights embodied in the Constitution, and most especially rights of black people, is not just Florida politics, vintage 1948, but American politics, vintage 1970, and on that reckoning, it is not Judge Carswell who is accountable. 
What is called into account is the constitutional commitment of the American people today. End quote. President Nixon and Attorney General Mitchell could not have been attacked with greater eloquence, nor could the merits of the nomination have been laid open more cleanly. The hearing ended on February 3rd, but the professional indignation continued to build in telegrams sent to the committee, letters to the editors of newspapers, press releases, and speeches. Derek C. Bach, dean of the Harvard Law School, by letter fell in behind his counterpart at Yale. Francis T. P. Plimpton, president of the prestigious Association of the Bar of the City of New York, called a press conference to release a statement of opposition that was signed by more than 300 members of the bar from over the country. Some 35 members of the law faculty of the University of California at Los Angeles and 19 law professors at the University of Virginia signed letters in opposition to Carswell. More than 500 lawyers employed by various federal agencies in Washington signed a petition against Carswell. Letters, telegrams, and petitions came in from law professors in more than two dozen universities. The entire faculty of the University of Iowa College of Law sent a letter of opposition to the president. More than 200 former clerks to Supreme Court justices, including Dean Acheson, who served as Secretary of State many years after he was a clerk to Justice Brandeis, signed a letter of opposition that was sent to every member of the Senate. Professors ordinarily do not make good Washington lobbyists, but in this cause they excelled, and when they finished testifying and petitioning against Carswell, the professional politicians resumed their inquiry. The Liberal Democrats investigated Carswell's membership in the so-called Little Wooden Country Club in Tallahassee and found circumstantial evidence that racial discrimination might have been involved. The evidence was this. The city of Tallahassee since 1935 had operated a municipal golf course, apparently on a racially segregated basis. In 1956, the golf course, with its little wooden clubhouse, was acquired from the city by a private organization, the Capital City Country Club. The organizers were some of Tallahassee's leading white citizens, who planned to operate the property as a private club with necessary improvements, including a new clubhouse, swimming pool, and the other refinements of private country clubs. The Senate liberals presented evidence indicating that the transaction also was motivated by the possibility that in 1956, two years following the Supreme Court's initial constitutional decision against state-enforced racial segregation in the South, federal courts would have ordered that the Tallahassee Golf Club be desegregated had it remained under municipal operation. Harold Carswell, then U.S. Attorney, was one of the prominent citizens of Tallahassee who, in 1956, paid an initial $100 to become an original subscribing member to the Capital City Country Club. He withdrew from membership in 1957 because he was not a golfer, rather than because of any reasons related to racial discrimination. Sometime later, when his sons were old enough to play golf, he joined again and in 1966 resigned his membership once more. That was the evidence the Liberal Democrats adduced from Carswell and other witnesses. It was tangential, more or less, but it was not unrelated to a determination of Carswell's veracity in renouncing his 1948 racist speech. Contributions also were inadvertently made by conservative politicians in the Senate and the White House to Carswell's opposition. Senator Huska's statement concerning Carswell's mediocrity was followed, for example, by Senator Russell Long, a Louisiana Democrat, who said on the Senate floor that it might be better for the Senate to accept, quote, a B student or a C student who is able to think straight, 
compared to one of those A students who are capable of the kind of thinking that winds up getting us a 100% increase in crime in this country, end quote. President Nixon publicly suggested it would be constitutionally improper for the Senate to refuse to confirm Carswell. Nixon, in the course of reaffirming his quote-unquote total support for Carswell, said that other presidents had been accorded a quote, right of choice in naming Supreme Court justices, end quote, and if the Senate, quote, attempts to substitute a judgment as to who should be appointed, the traditional constitutional balance is in jeopardy and the duty of a president under the Constitution impaired, end quote. The statement was foolish because the very purpose of Senate confirmations is to check presidential power, and Nixon had not read his history. Fifteen presidents, starting with George Washington, had seen 24 of their nominees to the Supreme Court fail to win Senate confirmation. After several weeks of liberal polling and conservative hauling within the Judiciary Committee, its members reported out the Carswell nomination on February 27, 1970. The majority found Carswell, quote, thoroughly qualified, end quote, for the Supreme Court. The dissenting minority consisted of four Democratic liberals, Senators Bayh of Indiana, Hart of Michigan, Kennedy of Massachusetts, and Tidings of Maryland. Debate on the Senate floor began March 13th, and for several more weeks, the quality of the debate in Washington declined as the academic and professional criticism of the nomination continued to rise, and even in places as far south as the Florida State University and Washington and Lee University. The Senate debate lasted for three and one-half weeks, and, as one senator after another addressed himself to the issue, the most surprising observation to be made from the outside was that the outpouring of professional opposition to Carswell had not been transformed into a flood of political opposition. A scorecard would have shown, as the debate progressed, that neither the Northern Liberal Democrats, who opposed Carswell, nor the Southern Democrats and conservative Republicans who supported him, had enough committed votes to assure victory. Nixon showed no intention, as lawyer or politician, of withdrawing the nomination. Again, the result would be decided by uncommitted senators, and most crucially by undecided Republicans. Principle is most likely to be compromised with politics in an election year. This was an election year in which some of the uncommitted Republican senators would have to face their constituents and their president. So the liberals who were against Carswell offered a way out to the uncommitted senators who apparently felt they could not vote against the nominee on the merits. The liberals proposed that the Senate take a vote on a motion to recommit the nomination to the Judiciary Committee, thus killing it. But recommittal early in the debate was opposed by some liberal Republicans, as well as by Senate conservatives who supported Carswell. Since the issue could not thus be evaded, the debate in the Senate floor the debate on the Senate floor continued. Senator Bayh declared that, quote, If the advice and consent procedure means anything, this is a time when we have, in all respects, to say, send us a man of bigger stature, end quote. Bayh and other liberals continued quoting Van Allestine and other professors and kept reading into the congressional records excerpts from the anti-Carswell statements that still flowed into Washington from law schools across the country. By insisted that Carswell's professional credentials were, quote, too threadbare, end quote, to justify confirmation of the nomination. Harold E. Hughes, an Iowa Democrat, told the Senate that arguments being made in support of Carswell were, quote, demeaning to the South, which has many better men to offer, end quote. Hughes added, quote, 
it is demeaning to the many federal and state judges throughout the nation who are conservatives in the traditional sense of that word, but are also great scholars of the law, while the present nominee is not, end quote. Alan Cranston, Democrat of California, entered the floor debate emphasizing testimony before the Judiciary Committee concerning Carswell's conduct as a judge. Quote, there is a consistent pattern in his behavior of bias and hostility towards anyone arguing a civil rights case of emotionalism, intemperance, and anger, end quote, Cranston said. Senator Scott, the Republican leader, this time supported the president's nominee, but with less than total enthusiasm. Scott, during the Senate debate, said he was convinced Carswell was a, quote, middle-of-the-roader, end quote. Senator Huska, the leader of the pro-Carswell forces, continued to make contributions of dubious worth to his cause. He declared that common sense and experience as a judge were more important than legal scholarship as qualifications for membership on the Supreme Court. Legal scholarship, Huska said, quote, is too often the only qualification an outstanding legal scholar has, end quote. On April 6th, after the floor debate had gone on for just over three weeks, and the liberals had renewed their attempt to have the issue decided by a vote on the recommittal of the nomination, the Senate voted on the motion. But the vote was 44 to 52 against killing the nomination by sending it back to the Judiciary Committee. The result was taken as a victory for Nixon and Mitchell, but their satisfaction was misplaced and short-lived. Two days later, on April 8th, the Senate voted on the merits of the president's nomination of G. Harold Carswell. Nixon and Mitchell remained, quote-unquote, confident of their victory, it was said. But the fate of the nomination rested with perhaps a dozen uncommitted Republicans and a handful of Democrats. When the roll call was over, 13 Republicans had voted against Carswell, and he was defeated. The final tally was 45 to 51 against confirmation. Perhaps the most dramatic vote against Carswell was cast by Marlo W. Cook, a Republican senator from Kentucky. Cook was a member of the Judiciary Committee. He had defended Carswell during the committee hearings, and he had voted with the conservative majority in favor of the nomination. He had voted for Hainsworth, but he refused, even at a late hour, to commit his vote in the April 8th Senate floor action. President Nixon spoke privately with him just before this final Senate vote. Therefore, when Cook cast his vote against Carswell, the packed Senate gallery gasped. The anti-Carswell spectators were elated not only at Cook's display of independence, but also because his name came early in the roll call, and his no was a strong indication that enough of the other uncommitted votes would be cast against Carswell to defeat him. Cook never explained his vote fully. At the time, he told reporters in Washington that his vote was politically the most dangerous of his career, and he added that, while he would like to see a Southern conservative on the court, quote, Hainsworth satisfied my standard of excellence. Carswell did not, end quote. Cook's reaction to the Carswell nomination, after he had considered it for some time, may have been affected by the fact that he himself not only was a lawyer, but also had served as a judge. Before Cook became a senator in 1968, he had sat for seven years as a judge of the court of Jefferson County, Kentucky. Cook shed additional light on his thinking about the president, the Senate, and the Supreme Court in a speech he delivered before the Louisville Bar Association on September 29, 1970. He did not comment specifically about the Carswell nomination, but he talked about the role of the American Bar Association and the Justice Department in federal judicial nominations. He was critical of both the ABA and the department for their long-standing arrangement under which the department 
as the president's representative, has been accorded the opportunity to pass on the qualifications of presidential nominations to federal district courts and courts of appeal. These selections, as well as those of Supreme Court members, he insisted, should be the sole responsibility of the president and his attorney general. The ABA, Cook charged, possesses, quote, a certain unavoidable bias against a great class of outstanding lawyers who represent plaintiffs in personal injury cases, criminal defendants, and quite often practice alone or in small firms, end quote. The association is, quote, large firm-oriented, end quote, and dominated by firms that do corporate work, Cook said. In conclusion, and without being entirely clear about whom he was referring to, Cook quoted from Samuel Butler, quote, Authority intoxicates, and makes mere sots of magistrates, and fumes of it invade the brain, and make men giddy, proud, and vain. End quote. Cook was one of three Republicans who had voted for Hainsworth and against Carswell. The other two were Senators Winston L. Prouty of Vermont and Hiram L. Fong of Hawaii. The Republicans who voted against Carswell and also against Hainsworth were Brooke of Massachusetts, Case of New Jersey, Goodall of New York, Hatfield of Oregon, Javits of New York, Matthias of Maryland, Schweiker of Pennsylvania, Packwood of Oregon, Percy of Illinois, and Mrs. Smith of Maine. Four Southern Democrats also voted against Carswell. They were Fulbright of Arkansas, Spong of Virginia, Gore of Tennessee, and Yarborough of Texas. After a major political fight is settled in Washington, one way or the other, the participants normally go on to the next order of business and forego personal recrimination, at least until the next election. But the nature of the Carswell nomination, the president's dedication to it, and the bitterness that the defeat left behind, all were such that normality did not prevail. For example, Mrs. Smith, on April 13th, on the Senate floor, charged that Bryce Harlow, a White House aide, quote, impugned the integrity and veracity of my office, end quote, in connection with the Carswell vote, quote, I am shocked at the repeated irresponsibility of Mr. Harlow both before and after the vote, end quote, Mrs. Smith said in her highly unusual attack. Mrs. Smith did not make entirely clear how her integrity had been impugned, but shortly after her Senate speech, Harlow appeared on a television interview and he conceded that he had telephoned Senator Cook just before the Senate floor vote to say that Mrs. Smith would vote for Carswell. Harlow said he had received the information from Mrs. Smith's office. Mrs. Smith denied that she or her aides had made any such statement and asked Harlow for an apology. He made a qualified apology. A second example of the recrimination and retribution that settled on the Carswell defeat was offered by some Senate conservatives. Senators whose hopes for the Supreme Court were most shattered by the Carswell defeat began to press their conclusion that the time had come to impeach Justice Douglas. Still another example of conservatives' mood of angry retribution came from Senator Dole of Kansas. Dole declared on the Senate floor, quote, It may be easier to change the Senate than the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, it may be a prerequisite, end quote. Dole, a strong defender of both the Hainsworth and Carswell nominations, found that President Nixon agreed with his conclusion. And, in 1971, Dole was named chairman of the Republican National Committee, and thus given the opportunity to act on his political conclusion. For his part, Nixon would not run again until 1972, but in the midterm elections that were held in November 1970, the president set out to do what he then could to change the Senate. 
He did not succeed if his goal was Republican control of the Senate, but among those 13 Republicans and four Southern Democrats whose votes were crucial in the defeat of Carswell, five had to face re-election in 1970. Three of the five were defeated, Goodell of New York and Gore of Tennessee in the general election and Yarborough of Texas in a primary. Theirs, ultimately, were the most dramatic votes cast against G. Harold Carswell. End of chapter 11. First of all, let me say this to you. It's a relief. It's, of course, always disappointing to not win, especially when you know they have so many fine friends and supporters who express confidence in you. I will always be deeply appreciative of the confidence of the President of the United States in making the nomination and of the many fine senators who fought so hard in support of this particular nomination. Not the least in this group, however, are those of my profession, the legal profession, my fellow judges who have expressed great confidence in me and in my ability to have taken this assignment. This has been an agonizing experience for me, my family, and my friends. But to have taken up the gauntlet and joined the debate would have been unbecoming of a nominee Supreme Court of the United States. There are many personal compensations, however, about today's action. On a purely personal basis, we have no intention of becoming bitter or remorseful, for there's no basis for it. The President has urged me to stay at my present assignment, and I intend to do so. After a little rest, we'll be back on the job. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, I have just met with the Attorney General today and also last evening with regard to the appointment to the Supreme Court. Uh, after the Senate's action yesterday in rejecting Judge Carswell, I have reluctantly concluded that it is not possible to get confirmation for the judge on the Supreme Court of any man who believes in the strict construction of the Constitution as I do if he happens to come from the South. Uh, judge Carswell and before him Judge Hainsworth have been submitted to vicious assaults on their intelligence, on their honesty, and on their character. They've been falsely charged with being racists. But when you strip away all the hypocrisy, the real reason for their rejection was their legal philosophy, a philosophy that I share of strict construction of the Constitution and also the accident of their birth, the fact that they were born in the South. Four of the present judges of the Supreme Court are from the East. One is from the Midwest, and two are from the West. One is from the South. Over 25% of the people live in the South. The South is entitled to proper representation on the court. But as I've often said to members of this White House press corps, more important than geographical or other kind of balance in the court is philosophical balance. And I have concluded, therefore, that the next nominee must come from outside the South since this Senate, as it is presently constituted, will not approve a man from the South who shares my views of strict construction of the Constitution. I therefore ask the Attorney General to submit names to me from outside the South of judges from the state courts, appeals courts, as well as the federal courts, 
who are qualified to be on the Supreme Court and who do share my view and the views of Judge Hainsworth and Judge Carswell with regard to strict construction of the Constitution. I believe that a judge from the North who has such views will be confirmed by the United States Senate. Thank you. End of part two of God Save This Honorable Court by Lewis M. Kohlmeyer, Jr. Read by Mike Overby of Amicus Lectio, a podcast where I read you open access and public domain legal scholarship. If you'd like your scholarship read on that podcast, you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Amicus Lectio or at Lethargilistic. Thanks and bye-bye.